Good evening, friends and Romans. Thank you for joining the Just Like the Boobies podcast, where we are here to discuss swords, sandals, blood, some light incest. Of course, we're talking about the movie Gladiator, not the 1992 underground boxing romp featuring James Marshall, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Brian Dennehy, but rather the 2000 Best Picture winner with Ridley Scott, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, the posthumous legend Oliver Reed, and Richard Harris among, and of course, Nordic robo-babe Connie Nielsen, among others. But <laughs> I just want to say thanks again for joining the podcast. We've been, we've been really enjoying some of the interaction we've been getting on social media. And I'd like to wish you all a uh, belated happy Thanksgiving. And I can only do that with one person directly. So I'm going to hand it over to the main man, Johnny. How was your Thanksgiving? And uh, tell us a little bit about why you picked this fantastic film. We're not doing... The boxing one? No. I had this whole setup, like <laughs> Brian Dan He going, talking about how the top of the head's the hardest part of the body. Uh, Bitch slapping a guy uh, out of the ring while wearing a giant leather trench coat. Yeah. All I of- did <laughs> excessive research on the early goings of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s career. Well, shit, man. Um, Are you going to be ready for this? <laughs> oh, I guess. We'll have to figure it out. No, I'm, I'm obviously doing a bit horrible one at best. Um, I'm good, man. Good. Thanksgiving was, uh, it was, it was good. It was good to, um, be able to take a little extended weekend and be with the family and, um, you know, really as we're getting older, you do become more thankful for things that you have and more appreciative and things like mashed potatoes and, and white meat and gravy take, uh, actually a backseat versus when I was a teenager and I would just had no worries and no drama no stress and it was all about the gravy and the mashed potatoes and the turkey but anyway uh yeah how how was your holiday buddy Uh, it was all right i was down in florida so i got uh, on the plus side i got to see my family uh you know my brother and my niece and nephew but on the uh i kind of the flip side it was just it was like really busy so and then i came back and i had like a pile of work to do and it's gonna take me like two or three days to get caught up so let's just focus on the positive mm-hmm. it was good to see my family and it was and the weather was was nice except it rained the first couple of days but uh hope, you uh fly yeah hopefully i don't have the new strain that you know double dipping <laughs> on covid that'd be fantastic well one thing is they didn't have covid in ancient rome they had the plague maybe but no covid so um so that's so that's where we're, that's where we're taking a trip back to those times um but uh yeah this i i mean i was excited to pick it when i picked it and dude i haven't seen this movie in at least five years and it just hit me so much harder this time and i'm and honestly it's because i'm married and i have kids and it's just like the what happened to him and everything that happens in this movie to to put him in the place he's at and his drive to get vengeance and stuff just took it to another level for me because so I was put myself in his shoes more and stuff like this honestly is the best movie we've done so far wow. on this podcast wow. I am so goddamn excited <laughs> to talk about it I'm glad I'm doing it with you um because i don't know that you and i have talked about this movie much like in our friendship for some reason and we met the year it came out yeah um so i i i remember seeing it in the theaters uh, it was at the end of high school uh i believe i tried to find it there was i swear there was a trailer or a preview of this movie that had queens we will rock you on it when the movie was coming out 
and I couldn't find it. But I swear that happened. I, I Connie Nielsen, a complete babe. Uh, this was my first introduction to Russell Crowe and my first introduction to, and I think everyone's first introduction to Joaquin Phoenix, at least, unless you remember that uh, Nicole Kidman movie where she To die it. for, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the newscaster. But really, I think this was most people's first introduction to him. And it was my first introduction to Russell Crowe. Um, and for me, without getting too ahead of myself here, I want to bring you in. Uh, Oliver Reed, man, even though he passed away during filming, uh, underrated star of this movie, in my opinion, and like a driving force of awesomeness. Yeah, it, his his performance, I I knew Oliver Reed even back then was a well, he was a very famous actor at least at one time, but I didn't know the only thing I ever saw him in was it was in this movie called The Assassination Bureau, which came out in the mid '60s, and like Diana Rigg was in it, and so was Telly Savalas, and it was supposed to be this send up of spy movies, so that was like the only thing I'd seen him in, and then he's in this. And he just, like his performance is just unbelievable. Like he, the Proximo character. I mean, we could get into it a little more, but just the balancing act about him being a former gladiator who, you know, he has no sympathy for these guys because he, it's all he knows, and he uses it to make a profit. And then when he talks about being a gladiator, he sounds like a retired athlete that misses the game, even though it, in a lot of ways, it was horrifying and terrible, and you know all those things because he could have died and like he had to kill people but he talked about it like he missed it and you actually believed it and it was like he was so he was fantastic in the movie and like one of the you know there are real tragedies but I mean it it was tragic that he died in the making of this movie and they were saying uh, the producers and uh, Ridley Scott were talking about how wow it's like a whole new generation is going to discover Oliver Reed because he hadn't done a movie that anybody had seen or like a massive amount of people had seen in over a decade and then yeah this was going to be like the third act of his career, maybe. And uh, unfortunately, um, according to his good friend, Michael Winner, who convinced him to do the movie, who's uh, the illuminous director of Death Wish 3, among other things, he convinced him to do the movie because Oliver Reed didn't want to read for the part. He thought he was too big of a star. And he told him to basically put his ego aside. You're not a star anymore. Convince people, show people you're not the drunk you think you are. Or they think you are, and you know you're you're too old to you're not too you're not too old to retire, or you're too you're too young to retire, I should say. Right. But apparently he wasn't too young to die, which is really sad. But I mean, he went out kind of like a kind of like the image he cultivated. He was a hard drinking, hard partying actor. He you know he came up in the same time that Richard Harris did. Uh, Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton, and they all had that same kind of. Um, archetype of being the hard drinking hard partying thespians and um that's kind of how he went out like he he was drinking really hard he was like arm wrestling sailors and then he ended up having a heart attack that night and he passed away when he was you know 61 years old yeah his final story if accurate is sounds like an old folk story (laughs) except it happened in 1999 in malta yeah um, yeah, it's just absolutely wild, man. Yeah, and I looked into it a bit because I know they had to do some of this with uh, Brandon Lee and the Crow, and maybe that's sort of how they started getting this type of thing. But the uses of uh, you know facial shots and takes and, and uh, reincorporating them and stuff like that is something that they have done for a long time in film using more basic techniques. But this definitely took it to a new level, and 
Uh, I know they had to make some rewrites and do some changes, and they probably cut a lot of his stuff on the back end because uh, he does he does sort of you can tell you can feel and see he he does dissipate quite a bit in the back end of the movie. Right. And I don't know if they shot this in sequence or not. It was it was shot in yeah. sequence. Yeah, so so you can tell he's there was probably a lot more there, but they were still able to give him some sort of a uh, character closure, and uh, I think they did a good job because you know as an eighteen year old kid or seventeen year old kid watching this movie in the theater, I didn't you know I wouldn't have picked up on that, but now no you know you, you go back and you you know it, you're like ah I can see you know maybe he probably had a little bit of a bigger part towards the end of this, um, but still like you said fantastic job uh, actors actor you you know you can. You can smell the man by looking at him. Probably some nice oaky uh, bourbon of some type, uh, but y- y- you love it. And yeah, I know he's a small part, but he was definitely this sort of driving force in this movie that you felt like he saw himself in Maximus a bit. And maybe that's why he uh, endeared himself to him and opened up to him a bit. And let me tell you this, dude, there's a lot of iconic quotes and moments in this movie. That whole win the crowd scene is fucking cinema that's that is amazing i absolutely love it i think it's a perfect scene and it's one of my easily one of my favorite scenes in this movie yeah it, dude this movie like i i didn't i was pretty excited when you picked this and i was kind of in the same boat i don't think i've seen this movie i can't remember the last time i saw it i remember i saw it quite a bit but the first time i saw it a, a buddy of mine that i used to work with in high school, we all he got a bunch of sneak preview tickets, so we got to see it like the Tuesday before it came out, and we were all really stoked. And I remember we came out when we saw it, and we were all fired up, like we were gonna go fight somebody, even though we're like you know we're a bunch of fucking white kids in the <laughs> suburbs, like who are we gonna fight? But um, <laughs> it was just you know that, all that testo- all that free roaming testosterone coursing through your body, and you just see you just you just witnessed about two and a half hours of just pure cinematic awesomeness, and. Unless, I mean, because I didn't grow up on these kind of movies, like the sword and sandal movies. Like, those didn't really make it into the rotation at the house. It was more of a contemporary 80s Same action. Here. Yeah. Reagan, you know, <laughs> like cop movies, essentially. Um, yeah. But this one was just, and, and part of the cultural impact of this movie, I mean, like, you know, we usually save that part for the end, but I mean, it's pretty obvious was it rekindled a whole, the, the interest in that whole genre. And. Yeah, Troy and everything that came thereafter. If anybody has not seen the HBO show Ro- Rome, I cannot highly recommend it enough, especially if you like this movie. And a friend of mine who I've mentioned a few times on this show who's in the lumber business, he was on my ass for years to get me to watch that show. And then I finally did. It was a great decision, just like revisiting this movie. So, <laughs> Yeah. So... um. You, so how long has it been? Years oh, for you Oh, man, I, I don't even remember. I mean, I know I saw it in the theater, and it was a great experience, and I think I had it on video as well. And But it's like, this isn't... The problem with this movie, the, like, one of the few problems it has, it, at least just in this context, is this isn't like a movie you could just throw on, like, if you just want to chill. It's not that kind of movie. Like, it's, it's very serious, and it's very um, intense, but it's good. And it was actually it was actually interesting because we've uh, a couple of movies we've discussed on this program. We've talked about how Roger Ebert was kind of on the right side of history with them. I don't feel like he was with this one. He gave a very panning kind of mediocre two star review and said the characters were were dour and the movie was muddy and 
that he just didn't think it was a very it was very good, and then it ends up winning Best Picture that year, which always isn't always the barometer of cinematic success. But mm-hmm. I just I just think it was interesting that for some of the movies he went to bat for in the past, that he came he took such a hard line against this one. You know, I guarantee if you took the same exact movie and had the characters speaking in Italian or Latin with subtitles, he would have given it four stars. <laughs> You fucking know that. Ouch. Ouch, baby. That's just how that stuff goes, dude. You add subtitles in a foreign language to a movie that's made primarily for American audiences to view, it's guaranteed via critics and everyone else to get bumped up a star level. Yeah, it gives it that that certain... Uh... Je ne sais quoi that that critical cachet where oh it's they went through the trouble of filming it in a foreign language so it must be more more it's it, art yeah it's it, it more it's higher art it's more intellectually credible <laughs> and uh, uh, Russell Crowe actually wanted to do a Spanish accent for this but uh, Ridley I, 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 I heard that yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Ridley Ridley Scott talked him out of it Ridley Scott had to talk him out of a lot of things because the as we've discovered, and as a recurring theme, we don't pick these movies for this very reason. We we find this stuff out later on, but uh, it starts with the writing. You know, Johnny is a writer by education and kind of by trade, and me a little less so. But um, you know, great. But this movie was such a hodgepodge of writing. It started off as one thing. It moved on to another. It turned. They were rewriting it on the fly. Like when the movie started shooting, the script was only twenty-one pages long. Which Russell Crowe, as a direct quote, said, that is the antithesis of the making of a feature film. Like, you have the bones, and then you have right. you have uh, one leader making all the decisions, and then they collaborate with the actors and the producers and whatnot. But this, this like, really turned into a thing where um, the original writer was David Franzoni, who had some success with Amistad. So he was in the middle of a three-picture deal with DreamWorks. And he, he'd he been actually trying to get this idea... He had this idea rattling around his head in the 70s since he read this book called uh, Those Who Are About to Die, I think. It was a book about Roman gladiators. And so he comes up with a treatment for this, and Spielberg's on board, and he loves it, and Walter F. Parks, who was the executive producer, like, he he's on board, and this other guy, Douglas Wick. And then they go out, you know, trying to put this thing together. And they get Ridley Scott involved. They basically got Ridley Scott involved because they convinced him it was going to be like a classical ancient gladiator movie. It wasn't going to be forced to be anything contemporary. And, But anyway, when he wrote the initial script and treatment, a lot of stuff got axed because Ridley Scott thought the dialogue was too on the nose and that the character wasn't sympathetic enough. So they brought in this guy, John Logan. A lot of people might recognize that name. I think he wrote Skyfall. He's a very accomplished writer. I know him from Penny Dreadful. The, the uh, Aviator. Oh, yeah, The Aviator. Good call, man. I The thing I recognized the most was uh, that Showtime uh, horror show, uh, Penny Dreadful, which I kind of was drawn to, except kind of fell apart at the end, like most of them tend to do. <laughs> But, uh, oh yeah, I think I watched like the first episode or second episode of that or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you you know Ava Green's in it. I'm probably gonna watch it. But <laughs> yeah, who are we kidding? <laughs> I, I'm a weak man. But uh, <laughs> but John Logan was brought in and he changed a lot of the first act and he he actually add, he added your favorite element, John. He was the one who decided to have Maximus's family get killed as a motivation. So that part that hit you so hard, you can uh, credit John Logan for that. Well, yeah, not, not not my favorite element, but yeah. certainly um, something that uh, definitely hit hits hard. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, I was yeah. being a little facetious on that one. And yeah. Then, uh, then they brought in another act, uh, another writer, William Nicholson, who was kind of like the heart of the thing. He just he had to make the Maximus character more sympathetic and, from a marketing standpoint, more accessible to women because he was already a great fighter and a great military leader. Like men were going to be drawn to that almost regardless. But then he added the, uh, the I think his the, the biggest substantiated uh, writing element he added was the afterlife thread, where you know the movie became less about a guy wanting to kill another guy and about a journey home because the movie kind of takes on a little mini Odyssey vibe even from the very yeah. beginning where he leaves Germania and you see his hair getting longer as he's trying to get back to his family in Spain and of course he yeah. gets there too late. And then, yep. you know, out into the outlying provinces, which was um, Zuccabar, I believe, which was shot in Morocco. And then all, and then making his way back to Rome to kind of complete his hero's journey. I mean, and that was all done, not just by those three writers, but Ridley Scott's contributions, uh, R- Russell Crowe's contributions, to a certain degree, Joaquin Phoenix and some of the other actors. Um, but one thing I thought was funny was when I watched this, I watched the extended version, which I had never seen before. Um, there was about 15 minutes of material that I hadn't seen before of all the times I'd seen Gladiator. And I recognized them right away because the scenes kind of all centered around the political intrigue angle, Mm -hmm. which I know Connie Nielsen and Joaquin Phoenix were kind of disappointed that, that those scenes were cut. But I think they definitely drag the movie down a little bit. They kind of take away from the main thing, which is Maximus is a kind of odyssey, his revenge, and ultimately his homecoming. Yeah, I think they made the right choices by keeping it a human story and based on these uh, relationships. And there's enough in there for the politics just between Commodus and that will he, won't he kill Lucius, uh, the, the jockeying for power, the forcing yourself into power, and and that that obvious inherent level of insecurity that he carried with him which caused him to kill his own father the jealousy uh, of uh, Maximus and uh, demanding people love and respect him which you can't do it's just (laughs) something you have to earn and uh, obviously Maximus won the crowd and earned that and earned everything that Commodus ever wanted but never was able to earn himself Uh, so you have these two big uh, personalities uh, running parallel to each other, but also then in different directions in terms of how they got to where they got. And uh, it's it's very interesting that the slave, a.k.a. the gladiator, it has everything, so to speak, that this Commodus wants, even though he already has all the riches and the fame and everything. It's just that measure of respect and uh, from people that he's been chasing. And in doing so, look at all the destruction and chaos he's caused in the wake of that. So I just love the character development and I feel like that's enough in terms of how all these characters intertwine and interact and all the things that one does to the next that affects the next uh, establishes in itself the political arena that's happening because uh, they do, you know, every once in a while wedge in comments about the Senate and dissolving the Senate and, and all that stuff and you get it and that's all you really need for a movie like this. Like if there were 30 minute you know, speeches or, or, or Senate hearings or whatever you want to call them in this movie, it would have, like you said, just absolutely pulled the movie down. Uh, and and, and the, it was already two and a half hours after, you know, 
which is an important two and a half hours because I feel like the 40 minute exposition leading up to the um, enslavement of Maximus, I think is very important because we do get to see him in his peak, in his prime. And if the movie doesn't give us that, we don't respect him or understand how great he is. We would just have to hear about it retroactively. So seeing him be followed by his men and respected by the emperor and uh, it, just all of that, I think, was just very integral. So I feel like all the choices they made in the regular cut in the movie and just the movie itself and how they did it was very smart. And I think which led to its uh, success and also casting the wide net to catch bring everybody in. Because I, like you, at least it sounds like you're saying... I'm not that big on, you know, ancient times and politicalization of those times and that sort of thing. So this movie probably caught me in its net where maybe it wouldn't have if it if it went that route. Yeah, I I think I think this movie kind of knew what it was trying to do. It just didn't have a clear roadmap. That's why Ridley Scott would be up all night faxing, you know, because they were filming in Europe. They started in the UK. That's where they filmed the Germania scenes. And it was a pretty cool story because they actually got a section of forest where the trees were old and stunted and the government was going to deforest it anyway. So they got free reign to cut down trees, burn trees, build a camp so they could all shoot in this one relatively small area. And because of that efficiency, they were able to shoot the first 40 minutes of the movie in a little under a month. And then you contrast that with the, the scene where Maximus fights Tigris the Gaul, and they have the tigers, and they have to put them in in post. And they had to film that scene alone for three weeks because of all the difficulties working with live tigers. Um, but, and you know, I didn't know that was Sven Thorsen until this rewatch when I looked into the cast a little deeper. Yeah, it was supposed to be Lou Ferrigno, but... Uh, Oh, was it really? Yeah, but That's I guess, funny. I guess uh, Sven Olthorsen pulled some strings, maybe had Arnold make a few calls. <laughs> and, right, uh, so for, yeah, for our audience, most of our audience uh, probably knows at this point who he is, but Sven Thorsen has shown up in a lot of Arnold movies, and he played Lafours and Mallrats. Son of a bitch is faster than Walt Flanagan's dog. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. You try to beat him with a sock of pennies, and it's just not going to work out for you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then... He, he's, you know, probably in his 50s here, and he still looks absolutely cut and jacked up, so good for him. Yeah, yeah, he's a, I mean, a great little part, and then, like, all the little attention. To, the attention to detail in this movie was completely insane, and we could get into that a little more, but I just wanted to finish my thought about how the movie, you, you brought up the point, it was shot in chronological order. Germania was shot in the UK, uh, the Zuckerbar province, that was all shot in Morocco, and then all the Rome scenes were shot in Malta. And it was kind of an undertaking because all the costumes... One, one of the five Oscars this movie won was for best costumes. And the costume designer and the costume mistress had to... F- Most of this stuff was handmade because the costumes didn't exist to buy. The, the clothes are too old. Like, there's only three gladiator helmets in existence, I guess they were saying, in museums. So they made gladiator helmets. They made boots, wow. arrows, shields, armor... All this stuff. They had to make synthetic armor for Joaquin Phoenix because he was a vegan even back then. And he thought, like, animal cruelty was, you know, making costumes. So they had to make synthetic armor for him. And uh, they they found this little... There's all these little funny anecdotes. There's a there's actually a, a, a documentary called Strength and Honor. It's it's longer than the movie. It's three hours and 15 minutes. I watched the whole thing about the, about the making of the movie, and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, we're not going to recap everything there. Uh, for your sanity, but it's clear a lot of the trivia from 
that that exists out there came from that and and you get it watching that something like that i mean not every movie's gonna have a chronicle like that of its own making but it was really fascinating to see kind of the creative process and how you know johnny and i when we talk about these movies it seems like there's just a lot of controlled chaos and there's a lot of places where these movies can go wrong and they just don't and it's and it's and it, it kind of makes the creative process even more amazing when you think about it. Just the, the kind of happy accidents that ensue. Yeah, that that's a great point, man. And good on you for for all the research and watching the documentary, which I'm sure was enjoyable, less less than work, but uh, still doing that is uh, um, a task unto itself. So I'll have to check that out. I did not know that that existed. So strength and honor off the yeah, it's it's on YouTube. I would watch it at one and a quarter speed. That might make. Oh, it. gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We'll do. We'll do. Uh, are there interviews with the cast and that and stuff like that? Yeah. There's like there's interviews. Like you get you get to he- they you get to hear Oliver Reed talk, which is super cool. Uh, that is cool. Richard Harris does a little little bit, but not too much. Um, you mostly hear from Russell Crowe, Ridley Scott. Actually, it's more kind of a vehicle for the producers and uh, two of the writers, David Franzoni, Franzoni and William Nicholson. John, ah. they, they got to talk a lot, but some of the things they said, like just the way they laid out like all the travails they had to go through and some of the things that actually worked out in their favor. Like when they were shooting in England, Ridley Scott wanted it to snow and he was trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to, am I going to have to get snow machines? What's that going to cost? And then it started snowing. So that was like one of those things that just happened to work out for them. And then, you know, you've got the mud and that adds that element of grime because one of the things they said that they thought, I mean, this isn't, you know, confirmed or anything, but the, one of the things the producers and Ridley Scott said they thought was part of the downfall of the sword and the sandals genre. What, Cause they used to make those movies. I mean, they used to make several of those movies a year and people would go to see them like Ben Hur and Spartacus. And uh, one, of yeah, the last, right. one of the last ones was fall of the Roman empire. Um, but which has a plot that's pretty similar to this, but um, the, um, they said that the costumes look too clean and, and there were too many scenes of people just sitting around eating grapes and drinking out of goblets. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of a cool observation, because if you watch those old movies, it is it is true. And, and this, that, is, that is true. And this movie decided to substitute all that bullshit for rad fucking sword fights and chariot races and live tigers and... Oh, Oh, prostitutes in the street. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. what a fucking spectacle this movie is. Like, it's just, even 21 yeah. years on, it's like, a lot of that stuff, I guess if you look at it really critically, it's like some of the stuff could look a little dated, but I think the just the fusion of the practical effects and the computer-generated effects were, were used to great, great skill and great effect, especially when you look at the fact that the Colise- like if you watch this making of the Colosseum, the only real part was the bottom part, and it was only half of it. The rest mm-hmm. of it, they tripled the height, and they had added a whole other like the the, the other half of it via computer effects. And I mean, it, like you look at it, in the, like that first scene where he walks in, and they pan around him, and they show the whole Colosseum. And it's just filled with people, and then they, then they bring out the you know they set them up for this big slaughter that was fit, like, patterned after a famous historical battle that the Romans won, uh, the Battle of Zama, when uh, Scipio Africanus defeated 
Car- uh, Hannibal in, at, at Carthage, but um, and who could forget that? Yeah, the, fu- the dude. The funny thing is that I, I was I had to do a little reading about it. Scipio Africanus had this big victory against Hannibal and the army of Carthage, and then basically he was a hero. But then the government turned on him because he wasn't hard enough on the government of Carthage when he when they prevailed, which just goes to show you what have you done for me lately, you know. But this is not a half-ass classical history <laughs> podcast. We're here what? to we're here to talk about how fucking awesome Gladiator is. So yeah, pretty much. So I guess um, to get it back on the rails, I mean, let's just start with the, the with the main creative force and the main like one of the main creative forces and the main character uh, Maximus. You know, played mm-hmm. best best actor that year, but uh, Russell Crowe. But that's you, the. That's the thing, Mike. Like this movie, I think was our biggest uh, Oscar winner that we've covered so far. We've had a lot of like nominated for Oscar type movies, but I think this one took home three, including Best Picture and Best Actor. So it was five out of the big, it won five. Yeah, I think it won five. Okay, but three three big awards though. Yeah, I know that um, it, it got so... kind of jobbed. I think for best, especially in the best director category. I had to look who won. It was Sam Mendes for American it... Beauty. Which like that's what I figured. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with American Beauty. Like it's a fine movie, but like, come on, dude. Like, just well, have you ever tried filming a floating paper or uh, plastic bag? Like you're, exactly, dude. You're gonna tell me that Sam Mendes did a better job directing that fucking paper bag floating in the wind than Ridley Scott did of recreating pre like like BCE Rome. It's like just loud, <laughs> just loud masturbation noises into the mic. <laughs> he did he did make it seem like Annette Benning enjoyed getting plowed by Peter Gallagher though. So well, I mean who wouldn't, right? <laughs> Come on, uh, like that's the, that's not that's not, yeah, anyway. That's um, yeah, that's true. Um yeah, no, but uh also I feel like Ridley Scott is a little bit of a Hollywood outsider. Like he's been nominated a few times, one zero, and he's made some pretty amazing movies, so um, well, you, you, but, well we know what he didn't make. Uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, the piano. <laughs> True. Um, H- had he had he made the piano, uh, maybe he'd have some hardware. But <laughs> well, he did not. Do you know who was? Do you know who was originally supposed to play Maximus but turned it down? Yes. Go on. Uh, he must have been up for every role in the nineties, but no joke to our audience. Melly Gibson, baby. <laughs> At 43, he thought he was too old to do this movie, but apparently doesn't Which think, is, doesn't think he's yep. too old to do Lethal Weapon 5 now. And he's going to direct that, I heard, yeah. No, but, fucking, no. That's a bridge too yeah. far, man. Yeah, he's directing it. All right. <laughs> I mean, he is a great director, though. So. That's true, but it's... Just... Uh, so... 43 Mel Gibson was too, considered too old, but five years prior, he does William Wallace. Yeah, I mean, come on. But, well, maybe that was why he didn't do it. Maybe he just, like, maybe it was pretty smart. Too on his close. Part. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm just yeah. doing, people will just think it's William Wallace, but in Rome. That's a, It's like Tom Hanks now playing every, like, real person in history. <laughs> it's like, we need a Mr. Rogers. They're like, get Tom Hanks. I'm like, fuck out of here. Tom Hanks is Mr. Rogers. All I see is Tom Hanks sounding like a real creep. That's all I see. But anyway. Um, 
Yeah, this is gonna be a, probably a long podcast, but it has a lot of uh, meat on this proverbial bone. That's for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, and Russell Crowe, man, this was definitely my first introduction to him. I saw this movie in the theaters when I was seventeen in May of two thousand, uh, towards right at the end of high school, and I remember just like getting behind this guy all the way, and especially when you're a teenager and you're, you get your testosterone is jacked mm. up and you you want to like feel the way that guy acts in the movie just like this is he's this tough guy but he's also just very cool and he's calm and relaxed and he's always like aware of what's going on he's just this badass general it's just like everything about this guy is amazing and um i'll I'll just i'll just say this like not i feel like not knowing much about russell crowe because he did he obviously was in a bunch of stuff before this but me not know like la confidential right yeah but me, me not knowing him at this point, I feel like benefited my experience because I wasn't seeing Russell Crowe. I was seeing who I was seeing was Maximus. Oh, it's... and I feel like that helped me sink even further into the movie with a suspension of disbelief. Because you know, there's great actors out there, but you see them and you're like, ah, oh, it's Jack Nicholson, you know. But with him, I was like, that's Maximus. That's who that person is, and I feel like that really helped my um, experience watching this movie. But I mean, there's a lot to be said about him, and I know a lot of this movie uh, between him and Ridley Scott, they wound up doing a lot of improv, and I'd be curious to see like where the seesaw went between them, and you know how they felt because he was established at this point enough where he could probably uh, assert himself. Because as we know, Russell Crowe is a very Type A person; <laughs> he is uh, a very assertive person. So I'm sure he injected that personality into the creative process here, and I'm glad he did because everything that happened around Maximus in this movie. A lot of the lines, uh, there really wasn't any, like, this is a type of movie where there could be a lot of cheese ball lines or lines that aren't supposed to be cheesy that are. None of that in this movie. I feel like every line was meticulously delivered and placed and whatever take Ridley Scott used, uh, everything was just precision perfect, especially for Maximus. Uh, and it t- for me, the cherry on the Sunday is uh, obviously the, the reveal scene in the arena. Um you know, the, I get chills every time I watch that scene and you see the quivering lip of Commodus. Uh, it's just like, it's just like that, that satisfying feeling, especially in the rewatch when you're like, I know it's coming. I can't wait to his reaction. It's like, it's like the reverse of like, I can't wait to say surprise when your friend's about to walk in for a surprise birthday party. <laughs> this one, it, it, on this one, it's like, surprise, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Yeah, and not even death can protect you from me because I'm still coming. Right. Yeah. yeah, making movies, yes. making songs, fighting around the world, <laughs> fighting around the world. Oh, South Park! Why did you go to Paramount Plus? I mean, baby. Oh. Yeah, the, the the Maximus character just entirely too badass for its own good. But it's it's pretty funny. You mentioned that scene where he says. I, I'm Maximus Decimus Meridius, you know, husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son, and I will I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. He didn't even want to say that line. He got a huge... Which is... That's insane. I know. It's like... So it goes to show you that a lot of these... A lot of, the, like, actors' decisions, you know, they don't bat a thousand. And neither do the producers, neither do the directors, but he didn't want... And this is, like, probably... Of all the great lines in this movie, that has to be in that has to be on the on the final podium for the top three. I mean, when... yeah, I feel like it's number one and two, <laughs> and then <laughs> take your picks for. And there's a lot of 
there's a lot of great lines in this movie mm-hmm. too. I mean, am I not merciful? Uh, I feel like that could have been a throwaway line, but the way Phoenix screamed it, ad libbed. And then, yeah, oh, was it? Yep. See, yep. because then like you feel like that's one of those lines where you're like, all right, maybe the first time he says it's in the script, and then he just belts it in her face, hopefully with an Altoid in his mouth, and uh, it that that is a movie that or a line in a, in this big movie that maybe shouldn't carry uh, uh, some sort of like big memory, but that's like his big line in the movie, and it's just like I don't know why, but it's it's. It's power. It's a powerhouse line. It is. It is. It's like, you know, the Commodus character is just, you know, he's basically just the son who can't ever live up to his father's expectations, no matter, like, what he does. Yeah, silver spoon little bitch. Yeah. <laughs> just, and then his father, like, just, why do I hang out with you guys? Because you're a piece of shit. <laughs> I, I swear, John, you rip on Commodus 13 or 14 more times, and I'm out of here. Commodus couldn't get his sister if he had a hundred dollar bill hanging out of his zipper. All right, we'll get to baseball another time. I apologize. Well, oh, we had to inject a little humor into this. I mean, the movie did too. It was pretty funny because one of the things that Ridley Scott argued with the producers about was he tried to take out any little joke in the movie. Like, he wanted to take out the scene where Proximo grabs the guy by his balls. Like, the way they introduce him. And he, grab, he grabs the dude by his nuts and he's like... And he's talking about how he sold him queer giraffes. They just sit around eating. They don't mate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want yeah. my money back. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly, he, he he really grabbed that guy's nuts. He asked him before the seat, before before the take, he goes, Are you method? And then he just grabs his balls. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a savage. Anyways, <laughs> I mean, so many great characters in this movie, but like as far as Maximus goes, like to kind of because he's the main attraction by far. And mm-hmm. one of the things I think that makes him the main attraction is he's just he's the pretty much the epitome of the the reluctant hero. He doesn't want to do any of this stuff. Like he doesn't want to help Marcus Aurelius. He doesn't like he just wants to go home to his family who he hasn't seen in two years, two hundred twenty six days of this morning. I think he said. Um, Nicely done. Well, we'll see if it's correct. I'm not sure. But, uh, and then he, you know. They're not going to (laughs) check. They might. You never know. (laughs) Somebody might. Um, And then, you know, once he's a, you know, once he's in, he, he basically, a lot of what I read watching this, this, watching it this time after being so far removed from it was, it felt like when he was a gladiator that he almost just wanted to die. Like he didn't care if he lived anymore. Because that was the power he had. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's nothing there's nothing more fearful than a man who hasn't uh is not afraid of dying. And I know that's a, a, a motif used in a bunch of different movies, including like Punisher and and th- I mean th- this honestly, Mike, uh, real quick tangent. We've been we're both fans of the Punisher, and I think we both admit that they haven't really hit an A plus on these Punisher movies. Just call this the Punisher movie, man. And this is the the Gladiator's the best Punisher movie ever made. <laughs> Well, for uh, for us who are Punisher fans who haven't gotten the best Punisher movie yet, but that and to, to to bring it back though in all seriousness, like the person who doesn't have anything to stay for and there's no he is he, he does not fear death, uh, he actually welcomes it because he knows what's on the other side and what he believes. Uh, you you 
that's someone to be afraid of for sure and he had that power it was almost like it's having a superpower because if you don't have fear of death you're invincible you're Doc in a weird way had a baby <laughs> yeah the um yeah his character like it's just the way that they developed in the writing just the shorthand to show how people respected him like the strength and honor thing was something russell crowe came up with like he said he needed some kind of shorthand with his troops to kind of begin and end conversations kind of like a like a credo almost and so he kind of came up with that with ridley scott and then you know, well, he wanted it in Latin or something, right? You're right. Ridley yep. Scott's like, yeah, fuck off. Yeah, he said it in Latin, and then, and then Ridley Scott basically said to him like, "What does that mean?" And he goes, "I mean, strength and honor." He goes, "Just say that." <laughs> like, <laughs> right. The funny thing about Ridley Scott that I I didn't realize after all this time, and I've seen some of his movies, and some of his movies are hits for me, and some of them are big misses, but, um, I mean, the guy's so prolific and he's been so influential, but he really isn't. As, as far as most things go, he's not a totally up his own ass with artistic vision film director. Like he, I agree. He really does understand that there's a commercial side to this business. And furthermore, in a lot of instances, like that kind of level of pretension doesn't do anything for the movie. If the whole movie yeah. is being conducted in English, what point does it, ha- does it serve for him to say one thing in Latin? Plus, I just looked up how to say strength and honor in Latin. And it's... It's like 27 syllables. It, no, it's just really wimpy. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Vieto nore. Is that... Okay. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So strength and honor. This is way, way more badass. Yeah, especially when you're like, you know, bumping the bottom of your fist into a man's chest subtly to build yeah. camaraderie with him. Like, and then... You're going to be like, Vieto nore. <laughs> Be like, I don't want to fight anymore. I want to. I want like a cookie and tea. <laughs> yeah, get me a biscotti and like an espresso. <laughs> a biscotti. <laughs> and you're gonna have to dunk that fucker for like three minutes because it has the consistency of plaster of Paris. And now, like, if they made that movie now, Russell Crowe would be like, Vietonare. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. Sorry, Russell Crowe. Uh, yeah, but uh, anyway, before we started talking about how bad some Italian desserts are. Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, the, the way the movie created the way, the, the, the way they mirrored the respect he had with his army, who he'd been with for God knows how long. And then yeah. once, I mean, they didn't show it really on screen, but once the, it was the same thing with the gladiators. It was like, he was a born leader and he was one of those guys who led by example, as a, as opposed right. to a lot of Roman generals who back in those days led with their wallets. A lot of Roman generals weren't really... I mean, most Romans... All Roman citizens, I think, had to serve in the military, if I remember correctly. But the generals, a lot of times, were rich men because the armies were more loyal to them than the empire because the generals actually paid them. Now, Maximus doesn't have that kind of story. He's a farmer, and he, he it seems like his... The respect that he has from his army is all is all merit based. It does, you know, like when uh, his his man uh, Chibs from Sons of Anarchy, I think his name is Cicero in the movie, played by Tommy Flanagan. He yeah. uh, he tracks him down. And he says he says the men are waiting for you, and he's like, when can they be ready? He goes for you tomorrow. Right, and right. And he said like, that they're all out of shape and like tired and fat stuff, and but bored. For you, yeah, How for are... you they'll be there. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's uh. 
That, it's so true. And, and it, again, he's the exact polar opposite of Commodus. So it's just like, if you feel like they're, it's the perfect like Greek tragedy type of Shakespearean story of, of two different people from two different walks of life. And uh, they couldn't be more different. And how one, uh, like I said, commands respect through just his actions and who he is versus the other one who commands respect literally by telling people to respect him. Um, and it's just so fascinating because it makes it very easy to root for Maximus in, the, in all these situations. And credit to Joaquin Phoenix for playing a hell of a bastard villain, you know. So um, he, he definitely deserves credit there. But yeah, the, the, it's just very... Maximus is just one of those characters that's very easy to... Uh, fall for and like and want to root for and get behind and it's it's weird how it's like uh, in two in two forms it's like we as the audience want to get behind him as a character the same way in the story his army does so we like we understand why they do that because we're sitting there as the audience like Yes, wherever this guy's going, we're behind him, and we're we're all that. We hope he gets his vengeance. We hope his story plays out how it's supposed to. So, uh, how they deliver the character to us sort of aligned us with his followers in a way. Uh, I find that very interesting. Yeah, and it, it's um, it all it it kind of goes back to that whole reluctant hero thing too, because you you made the great point that Commodus would have given anything to be in Maximus' spot to have his father's respect and his trust. And he didn't. And then when, when his father offered him the kingdom, of, well, the empire of Rome, but because he wanted to give it back to the people, what was his answer? With all my heart, no. Yeah. Because he didn't, yeah. he was not a political animal. He wanted to get, but he was a soldier and he like, he's a man of action and he figured his service, he had concluded his service and he just wanted to see his wife, uh, who's actually Ridley Scott's wife in real life, which I thought was pretty interesting. And um, his son, and then he never got to see them again, at least in at least in that life. So yeah, and you have to think someone who's that tactically smart and understands how things work. Maximus probably also knew what the ramifications would be if he took it. Uh, so he reluctantly took it because he did loyally serve the emperor. But maybe a little bit of it is him knowing, like, if I take this, this kid is a psychopath. He's going to kill me. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably like, didn't even think about him killing his family, but he's like he's going to sabotage me. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the whole Ned Stark thing from Game of Thrones. Like he, ooh, yeah, wanted to help. Yeah. Like he wanted to help his friend, but he was just too he was too honest, so he was too easy to he was too easy to read. Like yeah, and then it, it kind of went that way for a while with uh, with Maximus until he managed to find his way back to the Colosseum, which. Uh, you know, that's one of those things. I, it, all the planning he did to get back there, and he just couldn't anticipate that Commodus would have this whim to want to meet this guy who gave him something he didn't expect to see. The barbarian horde winning the battle of Zama. You know? Yes, right, um, right, yeah. And, um, and I didn't know that that's how they did those things in the Gladiator games is so, like, retelling of... of of those it was, uh, it was battles one and... of the things they did 
It was like yeah, it, I, I didn't realize that. I mean, yeah, they used to do all kinds of stuff in the Colosseum. Like they would have they would have naval battles. Like they would flood it, and they would actually have ships in there, like fight like fighting from ship to ship. And then God, um, that'd be amazing to see. Like to be able to go back in time and see that. Like as long as I'm safe. Like it seems like it's pretty like chaotic. Oh yeah, I would love to. I would love to win. Yeah, you just hit, you just hit by hit by a stray flaming arrow when you're in the stands. You got your loaf of bread and you're all happy, and then you just catch an arrow to the fucking <laughs> yeah, shoulder. Yeah, you're just dead. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine being at a Yankee game and you're about to chow down on a $12 hot dog and you get a, a, an arrow through the eye. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, the Yankees are proverbially doing that to me right now when it's off season, so that's fine. But um, I wanted to ask you, because my brother went to Rome and I think he went inside the Coliseum, if I remember correctly. Uh, I haven't been over there. Have you been over there? No, it's one of my great shames. Uh, you'll get there one day. Well, if this yeah. fucking COVID bullshit ever wraps up, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Like seriously, it's just like no end in sight with that. But anyway, let's let's yeah. focus on something good, which is this fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, but so, real quick, sorry. The yeah. the Coliseum had all kinds of spectacles. Like they talked about in um, some of the old historical like texts, they would find that there were animals that were hunted to extinction, not because they were hunted, because they were used for spectacles in the Coliseum. The the Roman Empire was such a just voracious consumer of everything around it, and there's this funny historical anecdote where there was a there was a strain of fennel. Fennel is the herb that like you most commonly see it in sausage. It's used in a bunch of other things, but there was a strain of fennel that was actually like a nat organic Plan B, like it was like a retroactive birth control, and it was farmed to extinction because. So many women took it in throughout the Holy Roman Empire, throughout the Roman Empire, and it's just like I just think that's one a very interesting thing, like a very interesting historical factoid that also shows just the level. You know, when uh, Derek Jacoby's character, Senator Gracchus, says Rome is the mob, like that's you know that's exactly what he's talking about. And then Commodus, right. as a character, is was kind of. One of the influences for him, which is kind of loose, but it was Ted Turner, how he used entertainment to kind of build a build a political base. And so and then even even that same character, Senator Gracchus, who detests him, says he's not as dumb as he thinks because he knows that if he can control the mob, that he'll that he can control Rome, essentially. And that's why he takes it so seriously when Maximus starts to win the crowd over by defying him. And his exploits yeah. in the in the gladiatorial arena, because a lot of people, I, I, some people listening to this might realize this, and some people might not. But the, the, the you know, Commodus was a real historical figure, and part of his yeah. mythos was that he did fight in the in the in the uh, Colosseum. He he had he won dozens of fights, and but his rule went on for about twelve years, and he was commonly cited as the like the start of the downfall of the Roman Empire. Because once, even though his rule was terrible and everything, once he died, the political instability went even more uh, kind of off the rails. And he would fight in the arena, and he would and he would actually fight wounded men, similar to the way he wounded Maximus in the final confrontation. But he didn't know that it was his supporters who would do that. His supporters would like pick hand pick gladiators, stab them in the back, and then like hide the wound and put them out there so he could win these fights. And then he would proceed to charge the government some exorbitant fee 
for his performance in the arena. And he would, <laughs> so it was, and that was all in service of his own ego. And it was interesting how they did that with him to, to they showed that one scene of him practicing the sword fighting shirtless in Germania to show that he kind of knew his way around a sword. But then they also provided this explanation for why he could take on a badass like Maximus and hang with him at all without right. being so stupid. Because one thing they established about the character is he may have been vain and mentally unstable and paranoid, but he wasn't stupid. Like No, no, no. He was, yeah, but, he definitely was calculating and, and, um, and aware of uh, what was going on and uh, what, what could threaten his position and that sort of thing. And also very... <sighs> I don't know if passive aggressive is the word, but it might be just how creepily he would manipulate his sister into staying by his side by sort of showing at any moment he uh, could kill Lucius. Um, like that scene where he's quote unquote innocently speaking to Lucius, but he's really telling Lucius that he knows what his mother did by siding with uh, Maximus and, and what the plot was. And then she starts tearing up and, you know, she knows at any moment, like, here's this boy thinking he's his uncle is telling him this story. And really, he's like just saying, like, you know, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to keep this chair. Um, and that's 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 like a different kind of horror, mm -hmm. you know. So I agree. He's a very layered character and they 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 wrote him well and they delivered him well. And it's the type of movie where sometimes when you got your marquee person, uh as you know Russell Crowe's Maximus it's so front loaded with that one character your main protagonist that your villain suffers and your side characters suffer and, and that that didn't happen with this movie and that's usually uh a testament to the director and knowing how much screen time people should get and how much you know you put your foot on the gas and take your foot off the gas in terms of how much you develop certain characters but i feel like Kind of like how I felt with The Rock, but this movie's better in my opinion, is making sure you establish your villain and have them at least meet your main protagonist in terms of their threat level. Like, Because if, if at any point communists look like a pushover, this movie doesn't work. And there had to be that level of, you know, because Maximus almost is like a this godly superhero and you feel like nobody's gonna stop him throughout this movie that's my maybe my one critique of it is that at no point was i like man he's in he's in real trouble here he just like mowing through everybody take care of business and it finally took that final battle where like you said he stabs him has them conceal the wound and then it becomes an even fight sort of thing it's almost like lex luther fighting superman with, with the kryptonite around his neck you know what i mean it's not fair but it evens the playing ground. Uh, it, it's you need that villain to be there, and uh, I think between the the writing, the directing, and Joaquin Phoenix, they gave us the villain we needed for this movie to succeed. Yeah, it could, well, conversely, I mean, he had he really could have killed Maximus anytime he wanted. He was the emperor, and he had that power. True, and, but the crowd aspect, right? right? It, 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 he yeah. was kind of hamstrung. It was like when. Uh, Lucilla, that's Connie Nielsen's character, told him the mob's fickle. And it, it was true. It was like he, he, once Maximus was interested in, it seemed like his leadership potential did, or his leadership abilities didn't really translate to gladiator crowds because he was so disgusted with the whole enterprise. 
But then once he once he just kind of applied himself a little bit, it it really kind of flipped the whole dynamic. And it, it was almost like they were tethered together and he had to find a way to eliminate him without losing this this validation that he had been seeking all this time. And yeah. Now, I don't know. I'm not as big of a history buff, especially world history. But would it be a situation where a, a populace of a crowd could take down an emperor in those times? Uh, and I know this is coming from a republic into a dictatorship. So there's probably still seeds of democracy and stuff. But like he seemed very like kept in check, like you say, by the crowds, overwhelming uh, adornment for uh, Maximus. Yeah, um, well, a lot of those plots usually originated in the nobility, but um, yeah, there was there was always the threat of a popular uprising because they they outnumbered the patrician the the plebeians outnumbered the patrician class by so much. There was always the threat of that. There was always the threat of riots in the streets, and you know that's what I figured. Disruption yeah. of of like supplies and things like that. But I think, but well, like the actual plot to kill Commodus didn't come from the pu- like the public. It came from you know his inner circle. And originally, the Maximus character was supposed to be named Narcissus, who was the actual killer of Commodus in real life. He was actually kind of like a personal trainer for him. Like, he was his wrestling coach. And he ended up uh, strangling him in the bathtub when the poison they used on him didn't work. So That's not as cool. It's definitely not. Uh, <laughs> I, I would agree. I mean, the... Imagine this movie was, was Russell Crowe teaching Joaquin Phoenix how to wrestle. Yeah. And then he he kills him in the bathtub. Yeah, it's like it's like a weird hybrid of Foxcatcher and like Julius Caesar. <laughs> yeah, there's just yeah, all right. these awkward like wrestling scenes that are kind of, kind of have an undercurrent of homoeroticism, and then all the political stuff that you you're not really a big fan of. They would have to ratchet that up to like to recruit him into the plot. Yeah. Yeah, that would not be very entertaining. Uh, no, the the Maximus character was a hybrid of several um, several Roman historical figures during that time who were very interesting. Like one of them was a farmer who he was he was made the he was made dictator to turn away a certain invasion, and he he handled it in fifteen days and gave it up. So he became like this kind of paragon of civic virtue. It was kind of like, like kind of like Maximus would have been. They they kind of took that element of that historical character, I believe, of, of that historical figure. I think his name was Cincinnatus, and um, you know, also several generals who were loyal to Marcus Aurelius, um, uh, his his son-in-law, who was actually a Syrian, not a Spaniard, who was actually married to his daughter for a time. But um, do you th- yeah. do you think in uh, in his mind? And now we're we're in in story here. In his mind, when Maximus realizes that uh, they're taking him to Rome, he's like, well, this worked out. That's exactly where I wanted to go. <laughs> yeah, because in, in the in the storyline, at least in the Rome of the movie Gladiator, there was, there weren't, the games had been banned from Rome. When historically Marcus Aurelius didn't ban the games, what ended up happening was he ended up conscripting a bunch of gladiators into the army. So there was a shortage of performers to put on these games of death. So 
Yeah. Um, that's why guys, uh, they call them Lannistas, the guys who own like slaves for blood sport, like, like the Proximo character. That was when they started making a lot of money was when there was a shortage of gladiators. Because as we know, a shortage of things means prices go up. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, also, like we touched on it briefly, br- briefly but uh, ex-wife of Lars Ulrich, Connie Nielsen, my own. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. You ever see Devil's Advocate? That's all I'm going to say. Yes. yes. That's all I'm going to say. That is all I'm going to say. But she was... Uh, a delight in this movie. She's a great actress too. She is. She is and, really good. And she, uh, she actually, they said. I don't know. I don't have any specific examples, unfortunately. But it, they said that she was actually kind of a armchair Roman history expert herself. So they would go to her and ask her things. And like the one of the rings she wears in the movie was an actual two thousand year old ring she found at some antique store. Um, oh, so yeah. so that she made those kind of contributions to the film. Now, granted. Real history buffs are like think this movie is anachronistic and they think it's not historically accurate and they took too many liberties, which they did because, you know, just with the main storyline. I mean, he didn't Commodus wasn't killed in the arena by a guy who ended up giving power back to the people. That's not right. how that all went. And um you know, the writer, David Franzoni, made he he did he made a point not to put that stinger on the end, like the post note, like because it would have brought the movie down. And not only that, oh, yeah. he just figured people already knew that, which is which is interesting, which might be kind of a convenient excuse, a Hollywood producer not taking the audience's intelligence for granted. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I mean, if, imagine if all that happened and you have, like, this great moment where, you know, it was, it was a little Hollywoody for sure, where he's, you know, giving his last commands and then he just drops like a sack of rocks, which... Which I thought was kind of a powerful image because whenever you saw Maximus go down in the in this movie, like he was always he would always be fighting from his back, like he he went down and he would he would never like just lay there like that. So when you saw yeah. him just go down like that motionless, you kind of knew it was over for him. And yeah, it was like that's I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into it. That's a, but I thought it was a pretty good piece of visual shorthand for him. I think yeah, I think you make a good point there because I didn't really think about. Yeah, there are a lot of times where he is kind of quite literally like up against it and he's down on the ground, but he's always uh, always in the process of getting up as he's down. You're right. There was never a long period. So you make a great point there. Um, I, I could see in some ways if they shot it weirdly. And again, you know, Ridley Scott deserves credit because sometimes, man, sometimes the way even directors just shoot things or use a certain take you'll get like a laugh out of something that you shouldn't like in the movie Gandhi, the way they handled him getting shot. I remember our whole class laughed because they went to a black screen and, and mutter, he muttered some line that was really bizarre. Uh, ben, ben Kingsley. And that's like supposed to be a big tragic moment, but they, they effed it up in that movie, in my opinion. <laughs> so the way he just falls there, I think you're right. It's just like he, his whole life force was gone and he was doing everything he could out of the honor of who he was to stay on his feet because you see him wobbling. Mm. Like, if he had gone down to a knee and then said a line, then another knee, and then, like, fall down a little bit. But no, he, like, he just, he stood tall and uh, out of the kind of sort of pride he had for himself and delivered his last lines and then just, like, he cashed out. Yeah. As he was sort of uh, going, 
in and out of see like death and life. He was like fading in and out because he saw he was reaching out and saw his wife and son, but then came back and saw what's his name and said him by name, and then he delivered the the final wishes of Marcus Aurelius. So, um, yeah, I mean, great. You make a great point there. It could have it could have been awkward and weird but man and um, i would you know i'm not the most like sensitive guy in the world or the most like like me yeah (laughs) i don't know about that i wouldn't go that far but like the most i'm not probably not the most emotionally in check guy but like there's something about that afterlife stuff man it is so poignant like even watching this when when like you said he was he's seeing the fields of elysium and he's kind of sees his family off in the distance then it cuts and he's reaching out and he's reaching out and then Connie Nielsen says, "Go to them, because she knows." Yeah, and then he just kind of does the the Hollywood like death scene, which well, you know, wasn't yeah. too bad, but um, but she she's like, "Do you mind if we make out first before you die, dude?" That would have been such a mistake for that to happen, like for them to happen. No, I know, but they do earlier make out though. So do they? Yeah, they kiss a bit. I don't remember yeah. that. I don't remember seeing that when I watched it this time. There was some smooching going on before he went to for the final battle. Huh. That's I don't yeah. see. I don't like that because it kind of they they wanted to do like kind of a love story angle like with the with her and 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 like how Lucius might be his kid for the sequel that they've been talking uh, about doing for the last twenty years. Oh, which by the way is is greenlit and is happening. Yeah, yeah. Chris Hemsworth got involved. Now it's now it's really on, off and running because those two did. Uh, the new Thor movie together and somehow he got involved and now was he playing Lucius I think pro- I would imagine so oh because they attached the the kid who plays Lucius Lucius whatever you want to say in Gladiator is on IMDB attached to Gladiator 2 oh wow yeah he's 34 now uh he's still an active actor he's not one of those like kid actors that disappeared um uh so yeah it'd be curious to see but I guess it takes place you know 30 years later and it's supposed to be like Lucius sort of picking up uh, the inspiration off of what Maximus had left behind. Uh, the kid's name is Spencer Treat Clark. He's uh, 34 now. Yeah, I just don't... Like, some of the ideas they had for the sequel, it just sounds like it's going to... I mean, at, at the risk of being melodramatic, it's going to ruin this movie. Because, I mean, they're talking about like having Maximus like coming back from the afterlife and being kind of like this eternal... Nope. Like this warrior who doesn't get to rest. So it's like his his death kind of echoes his life. And Russell Crowe can't have anything to do with this movie. Yeah. Well they they're they said he's gonna be part of it. And I know, but which that'd be a mistake. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I think so too. And I also think it's gonna be a mistake if they, they go with this whole angle where Lucius was really his kid. So it's like, oh, he loves his wife so much that he was banging the Emperor's daughter the yeah, whole time. I couldn't agree. Like, I couldn't agree more. Like Russell Crowe said the more. same thing. When they were making yeah. the movie. That's why I, I I just can't... I watched this whole movie back to front. I don't remember them kissing. I just feel like that would have cheapened the whole thing with his wife. Like with, you know, his wife being this powerful f- motivation for him. And then why, like as you mentioned, that's why he wasn't afraid to die. Because he thought he would see her on the other side. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure why they put it in there. It's a, it's a quick scene. And I don't know if it's like one of those like this isn't romantic. It's for this luck. Is just... Yeah, right. So, but 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 whatever. I, I I feel like it didn't ruin 
his love for his wife or anything like that because she says go be with them and that sort of thing like she wants him to be with them so and i didn't at any point feel that they were pushing the whole thing that lucius was his kid i liked the connection that they had between the two of them and i actually do like that scene too where um you know maximus like he sort of like lets his guard down and starts talking to this kid and he's got his hands through the cage and then he he realizes who he is and he backs off into the shadows again and he's like that means they're they're they might know that i'm me yeah like that 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 sort of stuff was was interesting because for the first time he's imprisoned and in a weird way he's free from having his guard up because he's like i'm a fucking slave gladiator like no one's gonna bother me right now so he starts acting more casual and stuff and then the moment the kid says who he is he's like oh shit yeah and he backs all the way up into the shadows and starts peering up and stuff like that so uh, and and the kid did a good job too. Like everyone did such a good job in this movie. Yeah. There wasn't like, and I know you hate kids in movies. Not, did no, you he like was this right. kid? He was all right. All right, okay, okay. And he, all right, and, we bro- we broke through. We broke through. And he and you could see how he was kind of like, uh, you know, like he probably you know missed his son terribly, and he just saw this kid and kind of like wanted to be like a have little dad moments with him that he real like you said he realized who he was and just the, the way he talked about gladiators and stuff was kind of funny you know and that, that whole little yeah. exchange about how he's like i you know like the tall tales that went around like that was another thing where that was cool they, they that was really very cool. really quick we've we've all often talked about the efficiency of kind of getting a lot of story across or like an element of that kind of of a, a certain historical element or whatever like doing that quickly and without belaboring the point and what that line right. did where he's like where she he's like is it true you could crush a man's skull with your bare heads he's like not a, not a not a man's a boy's perhaps and it's like and it just goes <laughs> to show you how like tall tales went around about these gladiators which yeah it's hard to imagine like you know we're both sports fans to varying degrees me less so than you but like you know we like football baseball like mixed martial arts and it's like, can you just imagine watching people fight to the death? Like how crazy that would be. Like you take, you just take like a like the UFC and you combine it with a snuff film, and that's like your <laughs> entertainment. That's that's bonkers, man. Like I, I, I can't even imagine. I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, um, I've seen. I'm trying to think. Have I seen? I mean, I've seen clips of athletes that died, but not live. Um, I've seen a pro wrestler die, but it's all like, oh, check out this video of what happened to this person. I can't imagine seeing that and that being one of the likely outcomes every time you go to see it or watch it. Yeah, so you, or, or the, yeah you're right. I, 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 think the clo- yeah. I think the closest thing you could ever see to a gladiator, like, like the outcome of a gladiator fight, was when that dude got his throat cut with the skate in the hockey game. I can't remember what the guy's name was but i think he was like he was a goalie in the 80s i think and somehow he got his throat cut with an ice skate and it was like oh man was it dead was it gnarly no he survived oh my god but i mean i, I mean yeah. we're talking like copious amounts of blood on the ice like it, it it looked like something from a from a movie like he had his hands on and like just all his blood coming oh my god Oh yeah! God Almighty! Yeah, jeez! Imagine, imagine you're watching a Chiefs game, and Mahomes, Mahomes like stinks it up, and you're just like, kill, kill, kill! 
and, and Roger like, Goodell comes out and holds his thumb out yeah. and he's like, eh, fucking kill him. <laughs> remember, but you got to remember in real life, the thumbs up meant kill, not the thumbs down. They just did that to make it less confusing for Western audiences. They flipped it? Yeah, because in the Roman times, the thumb up meant put the sword in them. The thumb down meant put your sword away. I think I like that they flipped it. It makes more sense to me. Yeah, that's exactly why they did it. It's it's part of that yeah. whole thing, I think, like I was saying about Ridley Scott, for the most part, trying to keep his films from turning into kind of that pretentious Oscar bait fair. Like, like you said, like if this movie was maybe shot a di- almost entirely in a different language, maybe it would have gotten even more like- critical run than it did. Fucking Rafe Fiennes as Maximus. <laughs> Harvey Keitel as Maximus. <laughs> a, a, a mute Holly Hunter as Commodus. Oh, no. And a Paquin. <laughs> Is it somewhere? <laughs> Meryl Streep plays uh, <laughs> Lucilla. Yeah, let's, get all the, let's get all the Oscar bait shit going. All the Oscar baiters. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good term, Oscar Bader. <laughs> Fucking jacking it to win the awards. Um, yeah, so uh, one person, uh, we also, I know our audience is probably like, you guys sometimes skip the music. We're going to talk about Hans Zimmer, we, no we, question. Don't, yeah, we'll, don't worry about we will, that. We will get to him. But uh, let's go back to Richard Harris a little bit because um, he's only in the beginning of the movie. But I thought he kicked ass too. I thought he did a great job in his role and sort of how he set the tone of how he feels about Maximus, how he feels about his son. And he was the one who vaulted Commodus as the villain, not necessarily by him killing him, of course, but at the beginning and how he was kind of just so disappointed in what he turned out to be and how he sort of said like, you know, I know my son's a little prick. Yeah. You know, so much for the glory of Rome. Right, and, and then he tried to right. walk it back, but by that point, it was, he'd already told him he wasn't going to be emperor, and it was just way too late. Like this. he's like, "Dad, I'm going to kill 500 horses for you." He's like, "What the fuck's the matter with you?" <laughs> <laughs> it's like when a dog like accidentally like, like kills a rabbit and brings it to you, thinking like it's going to make you happy, and you're like, "Oh, no, fuck, God." Bringing you to the pound. <laughs> so, um, you know, I thought Richard Harris is great. Um, it's it's funny how a year later then he, he played uh, Dumbledore and Harry Potter too. Um, he had quite the late career uh, renaissance I there. Need, that needs to be my next cinematic project is to get into like Richard Harris from the 60s, 70s, 80s, like when he was in, in his prime. Because, yeah. you know, he was great in this movie. He's also great in uh, Unforgiven as uh, yep. English Bob, but those are, unfortunately, those are like the two biggest roles I know him from. I mean, I'm sure he... Well, I, I feel that way about Oliver Reed, too, man. Oh, Oliver, I mean, so. Oliver Reed was, I I think, compared to, you know, he, compared to Richard Harris, I mean, he, critics thought the last interesting, or the last relevant movie he did was, he had a supporting role in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which I remember that movie from my childhood because it was one that I actively avoided. I don't know why. I've talked about that a few times on this program. Like, there were those movies you would see about HBO or Showtime or whatever, and they'd be on all the time, and you would never watch them. 
Like, <laughs> like one of them was uh, Silverado. And then I ended up watching that a few years ago, and I was like, this movie's pretty good. I don't know why... I don't know what I what I thought was wrong with it when I was a kid. But um, maybe I would think the same thing about The Adventures of Baron Munchausen if I watched it, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I think from from like brief understanding, Oliver Reed was popular in horror films um, and sort of like in the way Peter Cushing was and that sort of thing um, in terms of like leading roles he had. But either way, I'd like to check back with both of these actors and educate myself a bit more um because as we say you know we appreciate them in post prime so i'm sure they really delivered in their prime yeah so and and we we did talk about the proximo character a little bit at the beginning because you just couldn't help yourself which is fine because i mean he was such a joy in this movie but yes it was just like like we were saying it's just it's just such a it just sucks that we're never gonna get it was kind of like well, no, it's not the same thing because he was half his age. But like when Heath Ledger died after the Joker, it's like, what else would we have seen from him after that? Well, he definitely would have been in the next Batman. I think that was made clear. Um, and then um, obviously a lot of other things because he died at 28. Yeah. Right, six. Fucking um, Olsen twins. Fucking sleeping pills, man. <laughs> But Jeez. yeah, the, the, the thing I didn't like about the whole, like we talked about the mythos of the Oliver Reed death story, which we kind of mentioned, but just to kind of recap, it was, he went on this, he, Oliver Reed had a well-documented drinking problem and it was something that it always came up in interviews and things like that, because I get that he was annoyed by it, but at the same time, it was part of his image for so long. I don't know how he thought he could have avoided it, but he would get anno- he would get annoyed when late night hosts would bring it up and things like that. But he was actually trying to he promised Ridley Scott that he wouldn't drink during production, which gave him the option to. Dr- but he said after five five o'clock, my life's my own. But he but right. by all accounts, he was he didn't make any problems on set. He always knew his lines. He always like. But I guess he was indulging pretty heavily. And some of the other actors wanted to look out for him, but they ended up obviously not doing such a great job in the end. Um, But the thing I didn't like was that they took this story where at first it was kind of like he kind of went out the way he lived, like lived hard and it it just it was just his time. But... In this case, like then I read another story where they they kind of put this victimhood spin on it where he got lured into a drinking contest and he didn't want to stay out all night. And it's like, I even if that's true, I don't know who benefits from putting that out there. Like, instead of it being like a story about a guy who's kind of a hellraiser going out with his boots on, so to speak, like where, I guess, I guess it's just kind of a, gripe I have with contemporary society in general. It's like there's always has to be a victimhood narrative. Yeah. And it, it just it just ruins the whole thing. Like Yeah. Like I said, even it, like the, the guy racked up like a $500 bar tab and then he beat a bunch <laughs> of fucking sailors who were half his age arm wrestling and then he went home and what died. What a way to go. What a way to go. <laughs> but no, what it has to, to be a it has to be he was a victim of something. Yeah. Fuck out yeah. of here. Well, you know you know who was a victim? Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Wait, he did not die of plague in this movie, as he is thought to He have died. did not. He he died via uh, very loose clothing. Um, 
<laughs> and apparently very strong arms of walking uh, Phoenix. Though at that point, he's probably a frail old man, so probably easy to kill. And they kind, uh, they kind of established the Commodus had physical strength. Yep. Um, but that was a... That was a pretty rough scene to watch. Yeah. Um, anytime someone is killed slowly like that, um, it reminds me of that, that scene of um, when the way Adam Goldberg gets killed. Is that his name? In Saving Private Adam- Ryan. Yes. Yeah, that was brutal. Yeah, with the knife. Yeah. So it, it, anytime there's a slow death, it, it's it's a rough watch. But seeing, seeing that happen and then wondering how it's going to unfold and then... Um, you know, really seeing the evil in Commodus um, as he's able to just blatantly lie and say, um, you know, our father has died, you know, of natural causes or whatever is uh, so fucked. But I, I thought uh, Richard Harris did a great job. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of time between them, but I really bought in and felt the relationship between him and Maximus. Yeah. And. I think that's hard. Like you don't see that that often these days. I feel like either it's script writers or directors feel like they spend a lot of time trying to develop those types of relationships, especially in uh, a first act of a movie. And in this one, maybe it's just the performances between the actors, or or just this movie just being overall uh, a total package of greatness. Uh, I felt it. It felt real. It felt like. They had a very long-lasting, long-term relationship and understanding of each other and mutual respect. And Russell Crowe's Maximus looked at him uh, with such admiration and respect as sort of this father figure. Because thankfully, we don't get, you know, the Maximus origin story, which I'm sure if Gladiator 2 is a hit, we'll get the Maximus origin story. And we'll get, you know... Shia LaBeouf to play, uh, you know, Maximus. Oh, fuck you. And, and then... Sorry. Then we'll find I, out why what happened to Maximus's dad that, and, you know, that sort of thing. But that just... You, you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. You get what I'm saying. I, yeah. I didn't mean to come at you that hard, man. I just... I Like, I just... But you're right. Like, if... if Like, that movie, if for some reason it's a hit, which I would bet... I would bet my next month's rent that it's not gonna be if they make it, but... If, if it is, I mean, I'll be wrong, but then it's going to open up the door for all kinds of things that just aren't going to be as interesting as the original project was. Yeah, like if they do a Maximus origin story, it's going to be, he's going to be a young Spanish man who gets conscripted into military service by the Roman Empire. Like, that's... Yeah. And then... Yep. It's gonna, it's gonna have to do something like how he talks about the glory of Rome and how Rome is the beacon in the darkness and all that stuff. And, and then... It, it, and then uh, Marcus Aurelius is like, but you've never been there. Yeah. And that was a pretty common story. There were there were plenty of guys who served in the Roman military and were indo- like because it was the best it was the best life they could lead, and they were indoctrinated by the empire, and they had no idea what Rome was like. It's actually a pretty common trope in these things. Like a lot of great Roman soldiers had never seen Rome, or you know they they're far they're far from home for such a long time, and and that's all in service to the empire, but. Yeah. Yeah. Or or yeah, or like how it seems in this movie where he's like there once was a dream that was Rome and it's almost like he didn't see Rome in its prime or whatever. Yeah. You know. Uh which which is interesting too, but um I mean plenty of other characters we can duck into. Do you want to take a character breather and and and, and tackle a little Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. and what his contribution was to this one? Uh sure. I would love to. Um So, one thing I'll say about Hans Zimmer is the guy knows how to make scenes feel epic mm-hmm. and really bring up the drama of him. 
Um, though I'll say that it's either the main theme of this or one of the themes in this either sounds a lot like The Rock or Pirates of the Caribbean. I was thinking the exact same thing. I mean, there are certain musical, I believe they call them lay motifs. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but certain musical themes that get recycled by even great composers. Like, yeah, the yeah. one the one song that's playing when in their first battle what the bat the reenactment of the battle of, of zama in their first their first roman battle was like that was like it's like it, i was i was just waiting for fucking jeffrey rush to show up in a frilly pirate shirt like i was just i was waiting for it but but this movie came first and i guess he just kind of ripped himself off for the pirates of the caribbean score and yeah and that like and then that just got what me. tracks did what tracks didn't i use three years ago let's bring those back up <laughs> and it's just like that just got me thinking about how how those movies are just all the same like i know that's gonna piss somebody off but like th- i i love the first one yeah the first one's great and then actually we gotta put that on our list yeah. i don't think it's on our list the first one's really good and then like the other ones after that were just uh, I didn't like him thing. very much. Like, yeah. I'll never like. What was the one where they they had that three way sword fight on the wheel, and it should have been this like really crazy awesome set piece, and it just seemed like it went on forever. It's like, when is the sword fight gonna be over? It fucking. I think it was. It went on for like twenty two goddamn minutes. It's like people fighting on a fucking wheel, and like nobody got crushed. <laughs> it's like dead man's curse of fountains of stranger <laughs> things. Fucking no! All the subtitles of those movies blend in. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, to get to the fucking hidden island, you gotta sink your boat. Why did I think of that? Fuck this shit. (laughs) That's one movie franchise where I stop after watching the first one and pretend they didn't make any more. Because the 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 last one ends in such an epic way, where he recites the line from the song from the ride, and he closes his little compass as it's going wonky, and and then goes on his way, but. We're not talking about that movie right now, Mike, right? So <laughs> Yeah, we're not. We, we are talking about Hans Zimmer, though. And in, in fairness, I thought it was like, it wasn't like the greatest Hans Zimmer score. Like, I don't remember being like, oh, man, in that scene, like Hans Zimmer just took that to a new level. But I feel like he serviced the movie well enough. Like, it was almost like this movie was too good where Hans Zimmer wasn't needed to elevate it. If that makes sense. I, I like, think you would be surprised because, and I'm basing this off of something one of the writers said, William Nicholson, who was the kind of the, like he introduced a lot of the successful plot elements, like the afterlife thing. And he was kind of brought in to soften up and make the Maximus character more accessible, as I mentioned earlier. And of course yeah. he was brought in at the 11th hour when Oliver Reed died to figure out, it's like, cause Oliver Reed, there was supposed to be this thing where Commodus as kind of like, an, an escalating act of cruelty was going to make Maximus fight Proximo in the arena. And I think he was intended to survive that because the Juba character who he, you know, they developed the friendship. That was another way. That was another element that William Nicholson, I believe helped uh, kind of bring along in the story to make you know, to create the friendship between those two guys. When Juba buries the figures at the end, that was supposed to be Proximo. Oh, Not him. and ah, uh, you know, I mean, I like that scene a lot because he, again, another good actor, and and you saw like sort of like his smile and and that sort of thing, and they had like sort of alluded to that before, and he used that line 
um you know you'll see them again but not yet mm. and then he he brings it back about himself yeah you won't see me yet. so was that all retooled then if that was supposed to be proximo yeah because i think or they... i think from what okay. i read proximo was gonna bury that wooden sword of his where he got his freedom and that was kind of like one of the first things they bonded over was the fact that they both sort of knew marcus aurelius and yeah. you know he's trying to tell him how to succeed as a gladiator, what made him successful. Because he obviously had this raw fighting talent from being a, a soldier all those years and a general, so he knew tactics and things like that, but he didn't understand this mm. this world of blood sport. And it was going to be... So instead of burying the figures that were kind of like his totem for his family, he was going to bury his sword and say that, like, you know... I feel like that would have been better. Maybe it would have been... I don't know. I, I I do. I still like the scene. Yeah, I like. I I really did. Well, you didn't really touch on. Uh, oh God, I'm never gonna pronounce that guy's name right. Jaimin Hunsu. I think he was in Amistad. He was in Blood Diamond. He's originally from Benin, which I would su- I would suggest that's got to be one of the bottom ten most obscure African countries because there's like 55 of them, and that's like that's like one of them. I definitely have no idea where that one is on the map. I think I it's in the like northwest, got- but not sure. I feel like you got it pretty good. Yeah. In terms of how to pronounce it, I think Unsu maybe. Yeah, Unsu. Yeah, he. Yeah. You know, even at the beginning when they had that scene where he patches his wound up and tells him like, you know, don't, <laughs> don't take the maggots off. They're cleaning it. It's like oh, gross. But um, yeah. and then they kind of mirrored that scene where, you know, I I, I kind of made a made a reference to the fact that at the when Russell Crowe first got taken by the slave traders, it seemed like he didn't care what happened to him, and. So they had that scene where they they had that weird tracking shot where like they were he was like sliding over the ground, and then they mimicked that shot when he died. Yeah, because he he thought, that's a good point. Yeah, it was pretty pretty interesting. But then they used that kind of it was like maybe he was gonna let himself go, and then Juba said you know was trying to keep him in it. I don't know for whatever reason because he wanted to keep him alive. Man. Maybe he thought like this guy can get me out of here yeah maybe you know maybe um i mean yeah not not everyone i mean i know it's a drama piece but not everyone's this like selfless i mean there are selfish tendencies you're in a gladiator arena you're probably about to be killed be like yeah i need this guy around yeah Um, yeah maybe he did think that but they didn't make it a big sure they didn't make a big thing out of it they didn't they didn't focus on it like that's interesting subtext though i didn't think about that that it's possible yeah, I mean, and, and that's one of those scenes, Mike, you know, I'm glad you brought that up about how it was not supposed to be him at the end because that scene does play well because of the scene earlier, like I said, where he says you'll see them again, but not yet. If, so it makes me wonder, did they add that in after Oliver Reed died so that they can have that payoff at the end? I wonder if that was a reshot scene where he talks to him about his family and stuff. So like, we need, if he's like, they probably went through it. Like which character makes sense now to do this? All right, we'll go with him. Uh, Juba. So how do we make this pay off? I wonder if that was like a reshot for the scene earlier where they talk about his family that's, or not. That's a great question. I wish I could definitively say one way or the other. I just know that. So when Oliver Reed passed away, they could have reshot all the Proximo scenes. That was covered on their insurance. It would have cost the insurance company $25 million to do it. Just new actor? Yeah. They could have recast them, redone all the scenes, but then it would have turned into a thing where I think there was two concerns. One, 
One was kind of the more wholesome, artistic, sentimental concern was they didn't want to scrap Oliver Reed's performance. They thought it was great, like from the dailies and all that stuff. But the more practical side of it is they would have had to redo all those sets. They would have had to go like they the, the they would have had to go back to Morocco. They would have had to move the whole production again. And that I mean, granted, like it wouldn't have cost the studio anything, but there's a practicality aspect to it. Like and and the shoot was very long, very demanding. Russell Crowe sustained a number of injuries fighting. You know, fake fighting. But still, I mean, the weapons were metal, and they weren't steel, but they were sure because because Ridley, as Ridley Scott says, you can't have rubber swords. I mean, they had they had other weapons that were really soft, but like the swords couldn't be. Um, the 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 hours were very long. The shooting schedule was very tight, and uh, as we mentioned before, I mean, Ridley Scott and to a lesser extent Russell Crowe and some of the producers were rewriting shit on the fly almost every night. So. Ridley Scott would be up all night writing, and then he'd have to direct all the next day. And the attention to detail that he would give, that he was cre- that he was praised for by the producers, is that you know he he lines up all the shots himself, like the first, second, third, fourth camera, like he lines all those up himself. Uh, but um, dude, I I don't know if this is true, and I read this in one of the trivia bits, but. That Arnold Schwarzenegger was being pursued to play Proximo? He was. Yeah, I don't I don't think he ever I don't think it ever got past that point where it it kind of breaks the unwritten rule of the podcast where we don't talk about those hypothetical castings, but that's worth bringing up. Well, only because like you said which you brought up a great point. If they would have had to have reshot it and they had the clearance to do so if they wanted to, would they have called Arnold? I don't think 25 mil would have covered Arnold and the production overruns. That's not even Arnold like doing a little solid, <laughs> dude. Ar- Arnold didn't do people solids in the nineties. <laughs> like he was trying to be governor. Like, yeah, and he kind of right. he was. All, I swear to I, I don't I don't know if anyone else remembers this or if it's like one of those kind of things I invented in my head that I thought was real. But I could have sworn that Arnold Schwarzenegger did this whole thing in the in the mid nineties where he said he wasn't going to do R rated movies anymore. And that's what he did Jingle All the Way. And he did a bunch of other, like, more family-friendly fare. And then I I don't think that really was going his way in terms of box office production. So then he went back to doing, like, R-rated movies. Like, he did The Sixth Day, which was actually a really, really subpar R-rated movie. I agree. I feel like Arnold hit some sort of wall after True Lies where, in my opinion, his action movies just stopped delivering. Yeah, I I think some of that ha- like I don't know if that really happened or not. It's kind of like when Patrick Mahomes said earlier this season that he thought the Chiefs were going to go seventeen to zero, and no one else has brought it up since. It's like, did I just imagine that? Because that's thumbs a, down. Because that's kill. Because they that, kill. That is a stupid thing for an NFL quarterback to say. Oh, it's the first. Unless you're Tom Brady. Yeah. Eighteen and one. Somebody had to say it. He got stomped out by the ultimate gladiator, Michael Strahan. He just got his number retired. Just, Justin Tuck fucking owned him in that one Super owned. Bowl. Oh. Anyway. Um, so so imagine that, that, that famous line by Proximo said by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was not the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. I'm not going to lie. Win the crowd. Man. That's a little more. And you will win your freedom. 
I'm not gonna lie, that's a little more Werner Herzog than Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Maybe lay off the Mandalorian. Alright, sorry. No. I want to see the baby. Bring me the child. I want to see the baby. This is nature at its most terrifying. I feel like like maybe all of my impressions are Werner Herzog, like Paul Rudd in I Love You Man. All of his impressions are like leprechauns. Every fucking impression I do is just Werner Herzog. All, all my impressions are Ving Rhames and all yours are Werner Herzog. <laughs> do, you know, do, do, so do that line in Ving Rhames' voice. I'll pop it in the chat so you have the verbatim line. Uh, Proximo line. Oh man, we're just doing request. <laughs> I was not the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. Win the crowd and win your freedom, and also win an Arby's loaded Italian. <laughs> Wait, why? We have the meats. <laughs> Oh, so fucking good. We're we're at the point now. We're so we're over a year in our podcast, and we're doing callbacks. Yeah, oh yeah. Congratulations, Johnny. By the way, um, yeah, I I meant Congrats. to mention that at the beginning. I just I had a lot running through my head, but yeah, we've been Congrats to us. We've been at this for a year now. We've uh, put out an episode roughly every two weeks, which is uh, what we what was our that was part of our mission statement. Um, yeah, early. it was on our syllabus. Um. <laughs> Our abstract. Yeah, so, yeah, I think this is our 27th episode. It is. And for everybody yeah. who's uh, been there since the beginning, we really appreciate you. We uh, we don't want to say we appreciate you more than the newcomers because that's um, not very nice or smart. Yeah, there's so but <laughs> someone listening to this right now who's just like, dude, I just want to listen to a podcast about fucking Gladiator. I'm not here for the long haul. I don't need to... Who's this fucking dickhead doing a Werner Herzog impression? And then the other dickhead chimes in doing a fucking Ving Rhames impression. The fuck are these idiots? They've been together for a year? What? Fuck out of here. But anyway, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who's been supporting us and you know, yeah. keep keep supporting us at, at just the movies on Twitter at just like the movies pod on Instagram and you know, just spread the word. I know some of you have been numerous times. Yeah, and, uh, appreciate so that. So this isn't directed at you. It's directed at the people who maybe haven't gotten around to that yet. That's okay. We're all busy. We all uh, we all hate clicking. And subscribe. And, yes. Subscribe on uh, your favorite podcast app because it. one thing about this show is uh, we don't do it for the money. It's free. <laughs> so just subscribe free on your preferred app and do a copy link and text it to a friend and say, check out Mike and Johnny. They're, uh, they're all right. Check them out. They're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're talking bread and circuses this week. <laughs> so I'm where where are we man uh, help me I couldn't find my own ass with a flashlight well, and let's <laughs> let's I want there, there are <laughs> there are um there are elements of the more elements of the story and the plot that we can get into but why don't we uh, step outside of story for a bit and talk about how this movie performed Oh, real quick, before the performance, I wanted to say that um, we were talking about the score, and the point I meant to bring up was the fact that uh, William Nicholson, the writer, he was shown a rough cut of this movie, and he, despite all the efforts that they had gone through and all the, just all the just nonsense and the stress and all that stuff, he thought that this movie didn't work when he saw the rough cut. Then, wow. 
I think a couple weeks later, he got to see the fine cut, I think was the term he used, with the score in it. And he said the score totally changed everything for him. That's that's cool. All right. That's cool, man. And, you know, I didn't mean to... It wasn't me taking a shot at Hans Zimmer because I really love Hans Zimmer. I think Man of Steel is a movie I think he elevated. And it's one of my favorite scores of his that is uh, underrated, in my opinion. But... um. I, I feel like maybe for this movie, there weren't a lot of themes where I'm like, oh, and like if they played it for me, I would be like, oh, that's from Gladiator, you know? But I think he definitely, I may have underplayed his service to the movie. I think he obviously um, made some scenes bigger. Uh, there was even one scene where they're walking through the streets and I don't know if it's the one where um, his his friend keeps skipping through the crowd uh, to, to try, uh, Cicero tries tries to, you know, meet up with him to tell him about his armies and stuff. But it's one of those scenes where they're walking through the crowd and, and you know, the sort of Pirates of the Caribbean sounding theme hits. But I'm like, this is just them walking through the streets and they're making it sound like it's a big fucking deal. Yeah. And that's because it's because of Hans Zimmer. Yeah. For, for me, the biggest one was the um, at the end where uh, Lisa, I think Lisa Gerard, I think is how you pronounce her name. And she's just doing the vocalization. It's just and it's just so somber. And it fits. Yes, and it fits very yeah. well. And it it kind of sounds like a rejected track from Pure Moods, but it does work very well with that with that with that moment. And and it, it kind of just it's already kind of sad, and then it kind of makes it almost like oh man, who's redecorating it here? Why is it so dusty? That's like there's a something about Hans Zimmer and female vocalizations. Like there's a track. I don't know if it's in the movie, but the track uh, there's a track for Black Hawk Down that does that, mm. uh, that like rips you <sighs> rips your heart out. Black Hawk Black Hawk Down is the movie. I could only watch that movie once. I couldn't do it again. I me too. Me too. Yeah. <sighs> yep. Um, so Hans Zimmer, obviously a legend, one of the top five, maybe even top three movie composers of all time. Uh, did he did a great job here? That's not. I wasn't trying to say say otherwise, but. Um, no, I think I think you're being a little a, too rough on yourself, man. I think you, but you are right. I mean, every no matter how great an artist is, they're, they're like not everything they do is a hundred percent original. Like, there's gonna be common themes throughout. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. I think that that even goes with like some actors just have like little things that they say that become they 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 become like kind of unwritten catchphrases. It's just like little things they say or like. Other other like bands, they have lines that they repeat all the time throughout True. throughout their songs that what that don't have anything to do with each other, but they find a way to right. you know work them in. So I don't I, I think but, I think you're being a little too hard on yourself. You weren't being that hard on no. Hans Zimmer because I I totally agree with you. Like that the big that like that one song does sound like a like a Pirates of the Caribbean song. It really does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even though this movie right. came first. Good. Good. Yeah. All right. Right on. Appreciate appreciate the uh, the support. Hey, because it's you. Yeah, that's right. That's because it's us. Look at us. Uh, all right. So, uh, did you have a favorite battle in the movie? One of the favorite uh, battle scenes. Um, I would say just from. I mean, it's hard to hard to compete with the the battle of Zamo thing that I keep mentioning with. Where he, you know, he said, you know, if we work together, we survive. And then, like, for some reason, he's shouting single cover, single cover. And it makes no sense. But they understand him. And they're just, like, making everything work. Um, but, I, I, you know, so that's a pretty obvious choice. But I also really like just the one. I think they call it, in the, the insiders in the movie called it the six-man battle. 
but it's just where he just goes. I, like I kind of thought of it as like a gauntlet where he just rips through the six guys. And oh, okay. The whole yeah. point of the scene is that he's he's so fed up with killing for entertainment because he he just thought of people as being more like him, like more noble, more not like this. Like you know, like what he what he goes on that tangent about how. Marcus Aurelius had a dream about Rome, and this is not it. And then he goes out there, and he just he just puts on a show that's so disgusting that it, it like shuts up the crowd. And then he throws the the sword up in the box, and he just didn't. He probably was trying to hit somebody, but he did, or he just didn't care if he did or not. And then that's of course what he hits. You know, one of the most famous lines of the movie: "Are you not entertained?" And then, like, there's just, right. and the crowd is just silent. And that, yeah, that's another thing that, you know, we can run through them. There are a lot of very memorable lines in this movie. And that's definitely one. Are you not entertained is, is one people use in regular life as a reference. And then he spits on the ground. <laughs> that is cool. He throws the sword down and spits. Yeah. Fuck you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Bunch of losers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll take all you pussies uh, off. <laughs> um, I just looked at Russell Crowe. He looks like Phil Margera now. Oh man! <laughs> God damn it, Bam! Right in the gut, Bam! Um, yeah, the, the Gladiator Two. Every scene is him getting busted in out of the shitter. Yeah. <laughs> it's Lucius just running in, like punching him, like you are my real dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my my favorite battle has to be him versus Tigris or Tigris, yeah, Tigris, Tigris of Gaul. By the yeah. dude, that MC, uh, he's played by David Hemmings. He's the uh, I just love how that guy's such a scumbag. Like he can't even wear Cassius. Yeah, he can't even wear his rings on the base of his fingers. Like he has rings that are like on the first knuckle. <laughs> I, I wanted to with both of my index fingers and thumbs rip his eyebrows off. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Yeah, those, I mean, yeah, those eyebrows were pretty irritating. Like what? What, what was was that for the part, or is that just that guy? I think, I think it was a little from column A, a little from column B, because one of the trivia factoids made a point to say those are his real eyebrows. So, oh yeah, there's other photos of him with uh, later in life those raunchy, weird eyebrows. I guess, like a, yeah, I guess he was like one of those British pop icons in the '60s. I don't. He looks like. He looks like the owl from the Wise Potato Chips bag. To be specific, I'll take your word for it. I don't, yeah, my mic's disgusted. I, I don't know that part. reference. Um, yeah, so him versus Tigris, um, because I like the one-on-one aspect of it. Um, thought that was cool, and how he at one point switches hands, and you feel like that's the moment where he feels like maybe he knows he got him, and he saw maybe maybe some of his tendencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was cool, and then of course the tigers. You know, to be to be blunt about it, I thought it was very cool, and it they could have looked really shitty, but they looked pretty good. Yeah, they. And what and when I say that is, watching today, twenty one years later, they still hold up pretty well for for a two thousand movie. Considering a movie like Catwoman with Halle Berry came out after it, um, and and the horrible CG that was in that type of movie. Uh, actually, one of the most notoriously horrible CGI scenes in movie history is uh, the scene where she plays basketball. Knowing that they were able to uh, get these 
tigers um, into the scene uh, via the techniques they used and have it look and feel pretty legit and real. And they didn't even use cheating techniques like like a lot of quick shots or anything. Um, I thought was a really cool scene. So that was my favorite battle. And then when you saw the blood coming through his mask out of his mouth, you're like, this guy's fucked. Yeah. It was, it was kind of a weird thing because he hit him like he he nailed his toes to the ground and then hit and then like blood started coming out like it was some kind of torso wound but then he realized that he hit him in the face with a shield earlier and then when he lifts yeah. up the mask you could see where where he where it like cut him that was pretty yeah. cool but yeah the t- like well, I mentioned earlier the uh, tiger scene took almost as long to film as the entire first forty minutes of the film. Which yeah. and that was just Damn. them trying to get tigers to cooperate because they, for safety reasons, they kept the tigers like fifteen feet away from the actors at all times, and they had like they had handlers with trank guns on set. But there still was a scene where um, I don't know if it made it into the movie or not, but they were talking about how they were going over some of the shots, some of the dailies, and there was a scene where one of the tigers got a little off the chain and took a swipe at Russell Crowe's back and missed it by like six inches. And it's like, if that tiger would have hit him, like that was that's they said it was easily a hundred stitches, just from that one swipe. Because tigers, I mean, a lot of people like I I didn't realize this either. Tigers mainly kill because they're just really really strong. It has nothing to do with their claws or their teeth. It's like usually their te- their prey is long dead from blunt force trauma before they even have a chance to tear it up. Oh, like the the force of their swipes. Yeah. Wow, man. I I always love tigers, so maybe it's another reason why I love the scene. Yeah, the uh, the great cats are always very impressive, and it's always a letdown when you go to the zoo and they're being lazy, like skinny and shit, or they're ju- yeah. they're just like hiding. Like I I went to the the National Zoo in D.C. one time, and it was like a hundred mm-hmm. something goddamn degrees, like it tends to be in the summer there, and yeah. <laughs> all the cats were just hiding in caves because why be outside? Ah. It is hotter than fuck out there. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. All right. So. Uh, in terms of other, do you, do you have like, is, do you have a favorite scene in this movie? I like to ask that, or a favorite quote. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I think I just kind of like when, um, for whatever reason, I I always like when uh, when Proximo says we're under, we're just shadows and dust because it you know we we talked a little bit about his whole attitude towards life because he had he had defied death for so long and then he became kind of this. The balancing act for that character was pretty crazy because you have this character who is doing some pretty reprehensible things. He's buying men for less than you would buy wild animals for and then putting them in fights to the death and he doesn't care what happens to them as long as he makes money. But the character's charming enough and has the past of doing it themselves so they kind of... You don't give him a past so much, but it's more like... He's just a product of... It's kind of the the old school defense for anything, but it's kind of the... He's a product of his environment. But the you know the character, he had such great screen presence. And when he, when he talks about those... See, like his old battles, and he talks about what the crowd does. And it's like, it's like man, he, it's like he wishes he could be there again. Almost. Yeah. Even though his life was in danger every time he did it. That's a good point. That's a good point, yeah. man. Uh, I wonder that was his last line right yeah they actually um, you know we we mentioned um, 
the fact that they could have reshot all the Proximo scenes, but they between it was this real group effort between the editor and Ridley Scott and some of the writers to find a way to give Oliver Reed a proper send off because they realized they couldn't have him and they couldn't do the rest of the, the rest of the movie like they planned with him. So, but they also couldn't kill this. This was said in the documentary if anybody watches it. So you don't think I'm like just passing that material off as my own, but the, <laughs> they said, it's like, well, we can't just say one seed. Well, Proximo's dead and just not show it. Because right. that would be... No, you, yes, you can't do that. So no. what they ended up doing was they, at a cost of about, as opposed to $25 million, about $3 million, they got a body double and they managed to use... It's pretty obvious when you look at it again that it's they were just using old static shots. And, right. And, but they found a way to make it work and make it vibe with his character and also kind of create a callback where... He says, are you in danger of becoming a good man? And he just, yeah. he just scoffs, laughs, and walks off instead of... Yeah, he goes, ha! Yeah, instead, and that was just... It was it was kind of born out of practicality, but then the Shadows and Dust line, I thought... I always thought that was an uh, that was an actor who said that. Like, an act, they brought in an actor who kind of sounded like Oliver Reed, but it turned out that that whole scene was just him being all actory and <laughs> continuing to go... What, like after the take was over and so when he's in the tunnel and he says we're all just shadows and dust maximus and then he just kind of he just kind of looks up to the heavens and goes shadows and dust and it became this outtake and they ended up oh, God. they ended up using it as like his send-off for the movie so it's just one of those again happy happy accidents that happened to... that's a, that's a movie thing i've always joked about is when they repeat a line mm. for the dramatic effect and they do it again at the end of the movie when um, um, Juba goes, but not yet. Yeah, it, not it's yet. funny how a lot of those those moments that you know, for the more cynical, jaded cinema viewers of cinema, would normal like for some. It was like you were. I think you made this point very early on. Is that there's shit in this movie that seems like it's hack and it's cliche, but for some reason in this movie, it just has a lot more weight and more it sh- emotional resonance. It should resonance. be, but it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, we're not talking yeah. about, like, if we're being completely honest, we're not talking about a movie that's exceptionally well-written. But the writing, and between the writing and the performances, they managed to convey so much without really getting bogged down in, There's, yeah. in a lot of things. Yeah, you're right. And yeah, they, it... They, there's a very there's a lot of linear connectivity between the plot points and the characters and stuff. They really they get to the point a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a great way of putting it. And it's and, and and but I think that 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 helps us because it's two and a half hours instead of mucking it up with all the stuff that you don't need. Like you said before, like j- just the the folk story about crushing a man's hand with a palm, but maybe a boy's. It's like we got what that exactly meant in that 10 seconds. Uh, and because they used that there and got that out of the way, they were able to spend more time on conversations between the characters and developing the relationships. Like sometimes, you know, plot and stuff like that clogs up what is important to a movie. And to me, that is the relationships between the characters. And I think this movie did it very well. And that's why it all paid, it all paid off. We were happy when Commodus died. We were happy Maximus got his vengeance. We were uh, 
happy to see Lucius survive and, and hopefully go on to restore Rome in this in this universe and um, see him with his family and, and, and all that stuff. So uh, I, I, I just it's just it's just it's such a great movie. And if I had to pick a favorite scene, you know, I hate to be cliche, but it has to be the one that gives me the chills all the time. Just like every time, you know, Darth Vader says, no, I'm your father. It's, you know, when he takes that mask off and turns around and reveals who he is. And that whole little speech there um, is, you know, this is a top, this might be a top 10 movie for me all time. Um, that scene might be top five. It's just, and it's funny that you said Russell Crowe wasn't into it. I'm glad they, they trusted other instincts there because I think it's iconic, especially for a movie that's, you know, in the 2000s, you know, 2000, it just has this classic element where you can picture, you know, at an award show, a movie montage of some of the greatest lines in movie history. And that would, this would be in it. Yeah. It's just, and and like you said, this movie has so many great lines that it could have just fallen by the wayside or just been a throwaway. And it's just like, for some reason they stick with us and there's something about this movie that, that, that did that. I know, I know some, a lot of times you catch me flat footed with this one. Like you'll ask me if there's quotes that I'll tell you a quote I use and it's not, I actually use this quite a bit and I don't, uh, but it's, I don't think it's a great line for the movie. It's more of like a comic relief type of thing. It's just when it's sometimes like something happens like that. I don't like, and it's be like, Oh, my flight's delayed. This vexes me. I'm terribly vexed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. I say that shit all the time. But <laughs> uh, I do like the random, uh, the random like lines that aren't oft used. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you throw it out there, and if people don't pick up on it, fine. But you're still gonna do it. Yeah. I love that. I respect that about you. Yeah. It's uh. Plus, it, plus, when it fits contextually, it works because it does. It yeah. does vex me when my flights are delayed. Um. <coughs> I'm terribly vexed. It's almost like they got uh, Larry David to come in and write a line for Gladiator. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, you, I mean, you want, you want a tour of the palace? No, no, I don't want a tour. <laughs> no, I don't want a tour. <laughs> I'm good. Um, at my single, at my signal, unleash hell. Um, that's a good line. Um, and when he tells, uh, um, Commodus, like he, the final insult, he's like, I think you've been afraid your whole life. Oh, I, I mean, talk about cutting a guy's dick off, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because all that guy was obsessed with was having power. And he basically just called him up that he was a pussy his whole mm. life amazing yeah because that i think that was like that was something that he always said too where he he knew that he knew that people didn't take him seriously because he what he didn't prove himself on the battlefield because he would never like it wasn't within his character to risk his life he he thought he could and in those days especially in that culture that was the only way forward. It was like you were either obscenely wealthy or you, in which that was a very small percentage of the population, or you you served in the military. That was the only way you could be a proper, like a real man, like a proper citizen. And he knew yeah. he wouldn't have to do it because of his position. And it's like when he did, when he has that whole exchange with where he lists the four, uh, 
the four chief virtues uh, from his father's uh, one of his father's writings. I think it w- would later go into meditations. Um, he said he's like I realized I had none of them, and it's like it, it's like can, yes. Can you imagine like right. having that inferiority complex with your father your whole life where he was this high profile guy and you feel it almost seems as if his archetype of the ideal man is the antithesis of you <laughs> I, I i don't feel bad for him though well it's hard to yeah because of the uh you know all the because of the, especially the wanting to bonk your sister like that's um yeah and and yeah, all those scenes are very uncomfortable. Yeah. It's just... That's why I'm glad we didn't even touch too much on it. I think everyone kind of understands how weird that was. Even though it was um, much more accepted in those days. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Usually, uh, usually cousins, though. Not not some... Sisters, maybe a little less so. Cousin, yeah. cousin, cousin marriage, very, very common in the, in the days of antiquity. Big. Big. <laughs> a lot of times it was political. <laughs> You know, it's just to keep the families together, keep the families yeah. from killing each other, so to speak. But uh... in the family, <laughs> um, I don't have a lot much else. One one thing at the very end, um, when he's fighting, when they're fighting the the final fight, final battle, mm. and um, um, what's his name, Quintus, honors the fight by not letting Commodus cheat, and he says. Uh, sheathe your swords mm-hmm. because he's he's asking for another uh, sword. I thought that was great, and then he knew he was like toast at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, cool. and he, you know, Maximus dies uh, after Commodus, of course, after he kills him again. That was a slow murder too, or, or death. I don't want to say murder; mm-hmm. they were fighting. It's slow death too. Uh, didn't feel as bad about that one, um, but when she comes down there and she tells Quintus like. He was a soldier of Rome, uh, honor him, mm-hmm. and they carry Maximus out, and then you just see Commodus's body just laying there like like roadkill. That's like just like satisfying, and uh, I don't know I, that imagery, the like helicopter shot of the whole um, arena, and you see like how small they are, and maybe that was Ridley Scott's way of saying like, you know, these are just men. And when it comes down to it, the the uh, the bird's eye, all they see is a body. This is just a man laying there, as they, uh, you know, almost in a god way, herald uh, Maximus and hold him up as they carry him out. And then you just see Commodus's body lying there. I thought that was pretty cool imagery for to to close it out. Yeah, and it, you know he's he's dressed up in this in this white outfit that was modeled like after, he was he was almost immortalizing himself in the moment. And then he ended up getting killed over it. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of a lot of cool imagery of this movie. Like one of the things I noticed was in the first act, and I'm trying to think of where I heard this, but they in the first act it was like washed out in blue, and I think part of that was because they wanted the fire to really pop when they were you know burning down the forest and like you know bombarding the the uh, Germanic. Uh, the Germanic that fucking I don't know what you would call them the the <laughs> the horde or the vandals or whatever the, the vandals are a specific tribe but um you know they they wanted that to pop but to me that was almost like it was that was the veil that was the protection 
of the Roman Empire. That was what, and then when Matt, when that was taken from him, when his family was murdered, you get, and then all of a sudden it's like everything's these bright colors and everything pops and there's, there's sand and there's warm. Huh. Like, it was something that occurred to me just when I was watching it. And I'm, I don't really think that was the intention, but it was... It, That's interesting. It was kind of like something it, that I thought of. It was like he went from being this loyal soldier who thought Rome would always... Like, if he served Rome, it would always protect him. And then he was disabused of a lifetime of those notions very quickly. And then all of a sudden, it's like the whole color palette of the world changes. And it's warm, and it's kind of harsh and gritty. It's not like cold and muddy and blue like it was in the you know when they're in germania and the rest yeah now that you say that that's um i'm seeing it in in my head and i definitely feel that difference that shift that's a good point man yeah it's a little bit of a reach but you know i don't i don't know I, no i don't think I so don't, i don't think so at all i don't i don't do a lot of uh, thematic analysis on here it's mostly just um well think about it when he sees his family on the other side, that's definitely blue mm. and blue tones. Mm. So I think you're onto something. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, man. I, I don't know. It's something I was just throwing out there because, I mean, this... Ah, oh, God, this movie was so great. I, I mean, I know it's it's not my top five because I, we've had the... We've had the uh, discussions about my top five movies. I don't think... We, we haven't done yours yet, right? It's a fluid list. I I don't have any sort of concrete I, I, list, but... I don't know. After seeing this, I would consider bumping one of mine. I don't know if I could, but I would definitely look into it because just... I don't know how long it had been since i seen this movie, but just the way it, it mixed this kind of... It, it felt like a, like a really important movie. But at its base, it wasn't really trying to beat you over the head with how important it was. It, in the end of the day, it's a pretty, it's not, it's a very accessible story. It's not, yes, it's not some crazy labyrinthine, like heavily like human, like the whole human drama thing, like that where these subtle little things mean so much. It was like, yeah, the movie's pretty broad and it's pretty, it's kind, it's kind of linear, like you said, but. But the emotional resonance that they brought out from between the performances and the score and the stakes and just how you know, these all the things we mentioned the the relationship between uh, Maximus and Commodus and then kind of like how the empire was hanging in the balance but it didn't really that like that's just that's window dressing. It's about the fact that this this guy who has no virtues to speak of except being ambitious and paranoid and being able to kind of manipulate the public to a certain degree just decides to capriciously kill this guy's family who was like the son that his father wanted but didn't get and it's like it's right because like, i thought about that like I, I meant to ask that earlier like do you think that the order to kill his family came because he escaped or that was going to happen anyway Um, you gotta think something like that is meant to made somebody suffer. Um, so I don't know how that answers that question. Yeah, I mean, cause but, cause the 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 scumbag who did the Quintus who did redeem himself at the end, like he just kind of 
Um, he did say when they were going to execute him that they were going to, he said, look after my family. He said, they'll join you in the afterlife. And it's like, yes, oh, it's like, right. so we're supposed to believe, like, I, I don't think that guy gets a pass for telling the Praetorian guards to sheathe their swords when he was on board for all that bullshit. No, I'm not saying he gets a pass. Okay. That's not what I was saying. All right. Uh, I, I was saying he, he honored the combat of the arena and the rules of what was in play there and he wasn't going to let him cheat to win yeah it doesn't mean he was rooting for maximus necessarily there um but so i i'm not going to sit here and give that guy a full redemption arc or yeah, anything plus like he, that. and then he got to help carry his body out it was like fuck you dude like <laughs> yeah right yeah i know like, but um and, and then like let's not forget like probably the uh, i i can't believe i didn't think of this the harshest scene in the movie is when Commodus tries to really get to Maximus by saying how he heard his son squealed and how his wife moaned like a whore yeah. and that stuff. Like, like the I don't know who has the reservation to not kill him right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just like that. That that's. I think I think actually when they were do going back and forth like with all the production notes between Ridley Scott and the producers and all that stuff I think originally in the script he was gonna say something to him but they realized it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense because he was so like he could have killed him on a whim if he really wanted to and gotten away with it so he had to kind of swallow it and that's why he's you know referred to him as highness and then just like but and then there's also the, he said well he says the time for honoring yourself will soon be over yeah. or something like that right but, but he didn't like full out try to oh, make him look no. like a chump in front of yeah. in front of the crowd and then you know he also you know there's also the fact that Commodus was probably lying because if you look yeah oh yeah if you look at the the way the events were shot the kid got run over by a bunch of horses he's probably dead then. Oh yeah, he clearly just did it yeah. just to uh, see if he would react, so that maybe he can get him killed there by him trying to attack the emperor, yep. and those guys just kill him. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, that 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 I get completely. Um, but just and you know maybe it's the 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 smart uh, general and uh, in, in Maximus the saying like you know this isn't the time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Whereas maybe a less trained individual may have that sort of just guttural reaction to pounce and stuff because you know immediately i put myself in his shoes there i'm like man if that if that was me and that happened to you know my family or something like that i i i wouldn't be able to stop myself but he knew like if i go after him i'm not one i'm not going to kill him and two i'm going to be dead right so that's just that's what it makes that scene that much harder because you know he can't do anything it's like he it's it's the bully standing standing behind his enforcers, you know, like like pointing, looking around his shoulder, like yeah, yeah, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? And uh, that's a that's a really tough scene, it was a tough scene, but it makes the payoff later even better. Yeah, it's a it's it's all there to kind of increase the emotional stakes. And one of the other things <laughs> I wanted to touch on with the Maximus character was like just those little touches, like you know, we talked about Russell Crowe, and yeah, you know, we didn't get into all of his because we don't know all of his individual contributions to the character, but I do know that 
part of what he did for the character was kind of inject elements of his personal life into it. Because Russell Crowe does own a farm, and I don't know if he works it himself anymore, but he did when he was younger, when he was that age. So he used some of that to, like, when he ad, when, he does ad lib that line about how he, he remembers his kitchen and how it smells like herbs during the day, and like jasmine at night. And he's talking about how black the soil is. And, like, that was all him, to, like, kind of ad libbing that stuff. And then I don't know if it was in the script or he brought it to it, but, like, how he, before battle, he, he you know, rubs the dirt on his hands. And it's like, yes. And that that conveys so many different things. It conveys the fact that he talks about being a farmer and how much he likes working the land. And it also kind of has the whole mortality angle where it's like, you know, the dirt we are to the dirt we shall return, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And then when I saw it when I was a kid, I also thought there was a practical element to it in the fact that you don't want your hands to get slick when you're handling a sword. So I... yeah, yeah, it could be that, he, and he smells it too. Yeah, oh, he, which he does. W- yeah, oh, okay. which w- he he puts it up to his mouth like yeah. this, and that to me, I agree with all the things you're saying, and it could be multi-served. Yeah, maybe he initially used to do that for grip, and then he realized, oh, this serves another purpose, which could be let me familiarize myself with this place and make it my home for right now, so I'm as comfortable as possible. Let me become part of what my surroundings are and, and the environment. And that in that moment, that'll let me like understand what where I am and what I'm doing. Like maybe like a calming thing, like a, you know, one of those devices that people use to lower their blood pressure. And, you know, athletes do it. And obviously this is a, a way more elevated version of being an athlete because it's life and death. But uh, yeah, taking that dirt and just like putting it up to your face and stuff, it's like, I don't know. That was it, it, it's it, yeah. That, interesting. That's interesting. I didn't catch that. Like I didn't catch the smell. Him smelling it. I caught the him like rubbing his hands on it, and then like kind of let. But yeah, I mean, the, the I, like that's another just example of a lot, like a lot you could read into a simple thing that happens on screen. But it's kind of like a ritual of his. Like you said, athletes have rituals, and. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about the Browns-Ravens game because it's like there are stakes. Like, you know, a lot of times professional athletes do kind of lose perspective and they compare their they compare their respective sports to combat, but in a way they are. Like when you've got, yeah. you know, you, you dislocate your kneecap or you, your or your elbow or your shoulder or, you know, God forbid, a spinal injury. I mean, that's, you know, that's just, that's almost as bad as like facing a dude with an edged weapon. But, um... Yeah, I mean, that was, that was one thing I wanted to bring up because it's like, yeah, they make a big show out of it and he does it before every battle, but it kind of, I mean, that there's a lot going on there. Like, if you want there yes. to be. And it's, yeah. and, it, and it's not something that it's like, he, can you imagine like how hammy it would have been if he explained all that? Like, like, <laughs> like, like if uh, Ralph Muller's character, Hagen, was like, you fought a lot of battles in Germania? By the way, why do you rub, ha- why do you rub dirt on your hands? <laughs> And then he get and he gets into he's like it, it reminds me of my farm back home, just rubbing his rubbing his hands and then he gets into all the stuff and he's like then he talks about how of course you know you don't want to lose the grip on your sword and that's like the humor payoff and then it's like oh did that really have to happen like he's like he's like yeah he goes when I was a boy my father had very dirty had very dirty hands and the last time I saw him I shook his hand. And I had dirt on mine. 
And I swore from that day forward I would never fight a man without dirt on my hands. No, I'm just kidding. It's fucker fucking grip. <laughs> Idiot. I do like just the whole like when I was a boy. It's like oh fuck, <laughs> here we go. It's like that's, more origin story shit. That's funny, dude. That's really funny. Hu- hu- husband to a dirty wife, <laughs> father to a dirty son, and I will have my vengeance with this dirt to the next. <laughs> We're just shadows uh, of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh jeez man um yeah i'm sure there's um, maybe there's a an actual reason why they did it but i i like i think we may have at least hit on one of them yeah i, so. I think it might have been all of those i mean i know i read a couple of them yeah. and then like the thing about the more practical battle application was just something i thought of but uh it's not something i think of often believe it or not usually those things don't occur to me <laughs> Right. Usually I, I leave that to my friends who actually have like military experience and then they tell me something and then it's like oh and it's like that i should have known that that seems like it's common sense but you know doesn't <laughs> doesn't go that but way. then you get to tell other people and then you are the wise one so there you go yes sir sometimes it goes that way sometimes it doesn't but uh sometimes I- it doesn't <laughs> oh I don't know. I was I was just laughing about your whole framing, like how you just whole frame that in the most hack way possible, like talking about your father and all that shit. But I mean, how do you want to take this home, man? I mean, I I feel like we covered. I mean, we got into a lot of stuff. We even got into some of like the actual real history around. That you did, you did. I I am no history buff. Team effort, team effort. Yeah, team lift. I'll I'll handle fucking themes and shit and character relationships, and you could educate me on stuff that actually matters oh in yeah life. with the i think i took like mm. one college class about it i've watched some stuff on the history channel that's about what i know <laughs> that's called that's called absorbing and 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 harnessing that information i forget almost everything i learned in those types of classes but um yeah i think we touched on most of the things oh, i wanted, you wanted to, touch to talk on. about performance you wanted to talk about just Ah, it's, I mean, 460 box office uh, on a $100 million budget. $100 million budget in 2000 is a lot. Yeah, eight, eight of it was just on the effects, the computer effects, which which if you think about it, it's like that went a long way because those, those effects haven't aged that badly. And some of the shots they were able to create with them, especially when you factor in all the stuff they had to do with finalizing Oliver Reed's performance, I mean, it's pretty right. incredible. Right, it, it true. came in. I think the I think I oh I, I don't want to mess his name up. I think his name's John Nelson. He was the he was the like the effects supervisor, and he said that their budget for effects was eight million, and they came in just around eight three eight four. Um, to, you know, and and you look at the movie and all the the establishing shots of Rome. I mean, that's all CGI. The Colosseum's all CGI. I was pretty I was pretty interested by the fact that. Uh, in Malta, oh God! What? Oh, nothing. Go on. Um, go on. In Malta, that a lot of the sets that were used um, for the prison and for some of the other things was actually something Ridley Scott discovered when he was there filming another movie. It was like an old military barracks from like the 17th century that um, he and he he found that location. He just kind of kept it in his head, kept it in his back pocket, and then this movie came up and he. 
it was like oh that might work and so then they used it for a lot of the a lot of the scenes that um were filmed in rome well rome in the movie in malta so um you know, the attention to detail of this movie was crazy, too. I mean, that's why they it won best, uh, I think... Well, like, you brought up costume design, yeah. yeah. best costume design, it won best Oscar. I think it won. It also won best sound and maybe best visual, visual effects. I'm not 100% sure on the visual effects one, but it won five Oscars. I mean... Visual effects, yes. I mean, this you is... You got that one. This, like, when you think about just some of the deaths uh, you see on screen and the, you know, the chariot race inside this little set that they made and they how they were able to pull that off i mean this like i like i said this movie is like a bona fide spectacle probably the best sound too yeah i mean probably next to jurassic park i mean but for me this is a much bigger thing than that i mean i know bringing dinosaurs to life is a big deal and i'm not saying it isn't but but like to go this far back in time and to have the attention to detail with the costumes and and the and the buildings and stuff, and then you still got people like complaining how it isn't realistic enough. Oh uh, well, and... listen, yeah, people are always going to be mad about something, but um, I think you had said American Beauty. It looks like it was Traffic that um, for was the one that beat it for best director. Oh, was Steven it? Soderbergh. I thought it was. I, I must have misread that. I, I, I pulled it up right before we started. Which is, which is fine. But the one that upset me the most, which I groaned about before, um, was that... Uh, and I like him, but Benicio Del Toro beat out Walking Phoenix for Best Supporting Actor uh, in Traffic. And I don't know. I feel like Walking Phoenix was better than Del yeah, Toro suppo- was in Traffic. Supposedly, his performance... Uh, informed Jack Gleason who played uh, Joffrey Baratheon, Baratheon who was like one of the most hated villains of the, of the last decade oh, and yeah. he's, he said that he cribbed heavily from that performance for that and you know you, so I fucked the movie up sorry about that but the the bottom line oh, is it, still, it, doesn't matter. it still didn't win for best director and, and even Russell Crowe said that years later he felt ashamed of the accolades that he got when when he thought it was more of a director's film, and that's pretty gracious of him to say, I don't, like I don't mm. know if, if him saying it back then it, it wouldn't have changed anything, but you know for him to say that that's, that's pretty you know it's pretty humble and keeping his ego in check and recognizing like all all the creative inputs that Ridley Scott had not just the on the directing side but uh, but you know writing the movie as well. Yeah, that's true. And Russell Crowe, I guess, recently has said, like, ah, listen, they've been talking about doing a sequel for 20 years, so I just take that with a grain of salt. So, But it sounds like they are going to move forward, so and, um, we'll, keep, we'll keep an eye on that. But well, dude, and, like you said, I was kind of with you on your take on that, that it it really it can't do anything to serve this movie for the better. So I, I don't think so. And isn't Ridley Scott, like, 84? He is 84. Man, I mean, that guy yeah. is just... He must, you know, he obviously loves what he does, and you see it even in his movies that I don't think are that great. You can tell a lot of care went into them. It's just yeah, he just had one that just flopped the the last whatever, what it's called, last duel. Is that what it's called? Oh, was that? Yeah, I didn't even I didn't even hear about. Yeah, that. the last duel. It just uh, it made like twelve bucks at the box office. Yeah, but uh, um, so yeah, I mean. Hey, he's still got Clint Eastwood, 90 years old, still acting and directing. So maybe Ridley Scott's trying to keep up with him. But uh, either way, you know, um, he made a great movie 21 years ago, among others. So um, I don't have much else on this movie, Mike. So 
uh, unless you do, I I will, uh, as is tradition, hand it to you to uh, let us know where we're heading in two weeks. No, I um, I think I think we covered a a great swath of material. I know we never cover everything, but I mean, I think I think we got the highlights. And again, such a great like. I don't. This might be one of my like. This might be my favorite movie we've done. Even though the, yeah, the other movies me too. were in my top five. But like, you know, like the other movies were in my top five, like Die Hard and Robocop. But you know how many fucking times I've seen those movies? Like, I could almost do a one man show of either one of those movies and play all the parts. Like <laughs> like I would I would love to see that. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> I don't know which one. Maybe Robocop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe you maybe you'd appreciate that movie a little more. I'd like it much better, much better. Um, um, so, quick update for you, Mike. Yep. Ridley Scott, uh, two months ago, said he officially announced that writing had begun on the sequel to Gladiator, which will formally enter development after the completion of his Napoleon biopic, Kit, Kit Bag. Well, which is also starring Joaquin Phoenix. I guess we'll just have to see how that all plays out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I I don't have high hopes. But I but I don't have high hopes for a lot of things. So what does that even really mean? Yeah, go with low expectations. Maybe it's an okay movie and either way, it doesn't affect this movie cuz like I said about the pirates thing, you just watch this one. And that's it. Fair deal. Fair deal. So this will be I'm guessing that our next one will probably be our last of the year. Or would you want to squeeze one in before New Year's Eve? Do you think we could do that? Uh, we might be able to figure that right. out. Let's let's just say uh, we might do that. All right, because I'm a little I'm a little conflicted on this one because there are two big releases, in my opinion. I mean, there's more than two, but there's two big releases before the end of the year that have really caught my interest, and I would really like. So I was thinking <laughs> we could do one of those movies and keep it kind of topical in anticipation of those releases and so i know one of them yeah i'm thinking just because of how i feel about the la- the latter works of the wachowskis i'm gonna go for spider-man so we could we could delve into the kind of og spider-man the sam raimi version before uh in a ahead of uh, no way home which is like is the first marvel movie i've looked forward to seeing in years so which should bring back uh toby mcguire yeah among other people i mean um uh so we're doing the uh the first one yes we're gonna do the, we're just All gonna right. start we start at the beginning um i was really tempted to do the matrix but that's what i thought you were going i with. i don't i i really wanted to but the the fact remains that Cloud Atlas was just 10 years ago. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that I, I just, I, I don't have really high hopes for the Matrix sequel, especially when the first one was so good and then the next two were just, just not. So. Yeah, so I, I'm down. I, I haven't watched the first Spider-Man in a while. I'm not the hugest Spider-Man fan, but I remember, uh, like in that movie, the first one when it came out, um, and the second one was pretty good too. The third one was shitty, right? But uh, 
yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the first one and a lot of the cameos and stuff, so it's going to be fun to talk about for sure. Yeah, I, I hope so, because uh, I, you know, I, like I said, I really want to talk about The Matrix too. but I mean, I don't want to co-opt your pick. Maybe we could do that next time, but maybe not. Maybe we could just keep it in our back pocket for 2022. But um, Yeah, maybe, maybe we see, like you say, how that sequel comes out, and this way, if it sucks when we do The Matrix, we can shit on that one. Uh, you know, sometimes we like to shit on reboots, but I did see the new Ghostbusters and I liked it. Oh, so I'll just oh, put, that's put cool. that out there. Yeah, I, I was yeah. I was pretty hesitant to see that one, but because I haven't been to the theaters in two in like two years, so yeah, it was my first time in the theater in a very long time. I think uh, I think No Way Home is gonna get me back in the theater. There you go, man. Yeah. All right, so Spider Man it is. Uh, thank you for that pick. Um. Anything else uh, for our for our loyal listeners before uh, I take us out of here? Nah, man. Take us home. All right. Thank you to everybody for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed our takes on Gladiator. Um, let us know what you think, whether that's on social media. If we put out the episode and you don't mind quote tweeting it with a favorite part from this episode. So that maybe give people who follow you an idea of what we're all about. Um, we obviously, you know, this is a serious podcast in some elements, but we got a little zany and and had some cool tangents, I think. Uh, so anything you'd like to share, we appreciate that. And like I said, subscribe on your preferred platforms, but, uh, like, I just want to echo what Mike said before. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting us and, uh, telling people about us more importantly, because word of mouth is the key. So keep doing that. We really appreciate it very much. Uh, but till next time where we're going to talk about Spider-Man. From Mike and myself here at Just Like the Movies, be sure to be kind, rewind, relax, and we'll see you around. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Give me a break.